Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here. It it is 3 p.m. in the winter, so it's all of those at once over here. (laughs) That is true. That is true. It is 76 here. (laughs) (laughs) It's regular all evening time here. No winter included, you know, just Mm -hmm. rain and hot. That's the two moods of the weather. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which winter is it right now? Is it rain winter or hot winter? Neither. <laughs> there is no winter. Winter's never. Well, I hope that winter never comes to the island. If it does, yeah. I think we'll be in some deep shit. You know, if you guys get <laughs> yeah. snow, things have really yeah, gone yeah, south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's time yeah. for us all to reevaluate our practices when that happens. Yeah. Until then, absolutely. It means absolutely. the parrots have migrated to Alaska. Oh God. <laughs> Uh, they, they, is... they do a lot of movements around the evening time, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't be surprised if they decide to pack up and leave us all behind. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is It Could Happen Here, as as you might be aware, a podcast about things falling apart. And today's episode is brought to us by Andrew. Hello. Of the YouTube channel, Andrewism. Mm-hmm. Just to avoid confusion with other Andrews, you know, Abusing oh, I did my, not like, realize. Yeah, yeah, that's there. right. Son of the Queen. Yeah, you know, you could talk about Prince Andrew. You could talk about <laughs> Andrew Tate. You know, it's like I, I, oh. I distinguish myself. You know. <laughs> yeah, you're the best, Andrew. I oh, appreciate that. Anytime, buddy. So I'd like to spend some time today, tonight. What is time really? Uh, and to talk about the concept of degrowth. You know, where it comes from, what it means, what it needs, and all that other fun stuff. 
Are you guys familiar with degrowth as as a concept? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and it's uh, yeah. I I please please. I mean, it's one of those things that gets a lot of like uh, flack on one hand for people saying that it's basically eco fascism, and then you have folks being like, no, it's a it's a perfectly reasonable response to the kind of endless growth attitude that got us into the environmental catastrophe we're currently experiencing. That's uh, yeah. 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 That's I think that, um, yeah. having released a video on degrowth last week and having read through some of the comments I've received, um, I've come to the conclusion that there is no getting through to some people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because oh no, you, people people love to listen to like a third of what you say and then get really angry at what they think you said. Every time we talk about like the value of of things like you know the, the Four Thieves Vinegar Collective, you know, hacking different medicines or training people to be medics, somebody hops on the subreddit and said, "I think it's kind of ableist that they think that you know people can replace doctors with with street medics." Like, no one, no one's ever made that case. That that's not yeah, a thing yeah. that anyone has yeah. ever said. <laughs> I'm going to make it my entire life mission to only specifically make this case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All we no, need no, no. is doctors a guy are, with some gauze and yeah. water in a bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do- doctors are bourgeoisie. Uh, they, 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 they must all die when the revolution mm-hmm. comes. They will only be replaced with street medics. It's going to be great. I'm texting all of this to our friend Kava right now, Dr. Hoda. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just ridiculous. So people will literally project what they think you said onto what you actually said. Yeah. Um, it's very, very obvious when it's taken place. I don't know how they don't feel embarrassed. You know, a lot of times I barely comment on things. I barely like respond to things. And when I do, I check and recheck and recheck what the person has said. Then I check and recheck and recheck what I see. Before I yeah. make a statement, because it makes Cause I don't you feel know like you're going could, crazy. Like, how do you not feel embarrassed? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like everybody who has watched the video can see that you haven't watched it. <laughs> <laughs> They've just done like a term search and then appeared, and uh, yeah, and like they, yeah, yeah, they come to engage you. Pretty yeah. much, pretty much. Yeah. But I mean, if I were to be a slave to the algorithm, I would say all that engagement helps, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it does. It helps. It helps one thing for sure. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help get us to a better place. Unfortunately, and speaking of things that do not help us get to a better place, I think it's the growth primarily is about confronting this destructive ideology of growthism. You know, it's something we see all around us, something we interact with on a fairly regular basis. You see the images of the Amazon rainforest being cut down to be um, turned into soy farms until eventually it's made into cattle grazing fields. Uh, You talk about the constant expansion of oil infrastructure. You talk about the constant expansion of mining operations. You talk about the continued rise of fast fashion that people are extremely defensive of whenever you try to criticize it. Um, All of these systems all of these uh, industries all of these practices uh are part of part and parcel or rather products of this ideology of growthism that capitalism is driven by and i know it may be strange for some people to sort of deprogram from this idea that growth is like an unadulterated good uncontroversially positive um, because 
you know, nature is like all about growth, right? You know, when you think of growth, you think of a plant peeking out of the soil. You think of a baby kitten growing up to be a cat. You talk about like babies becoming toddlers, becoming young children, becoming older children, becoming, you know, tweens and teens and then finally adults. And then from there, Joe Biden. Um, but, you know, there's this whole idea of growth and that growth is like a natural part of life. And that is true. But growth in life does not go on and on and on and on. You know, organisms grow up to a certain point and then they maintain a healthy equilibrium, or at least they try to. Um, of course, health is not necessarily a natural state of affairs because viruses are just as natural as the cells they attack. Uh, and then you could also get all... Uh, ephemeral and talk about personal growth and how life is a constant journey of personal growth and whatever but speaking materially speaking physically growth has a limit people grow up to a certain height a certain size and so on and when growth doesn't stop that's when we start running into problems as yeah. i understand the reason that cancer is so difficult to cure is because it's your own body turning against you it's your it's some of the many trillions of your own cells Deciding, okay, time to just grow and grow and grow without limit. And what happens in most of those cases, in many of those cases rather, unfortunately people die as a result. So in our bodies, in our own bodies, we understand that growth is not always positive. And yet, that sick logic of growth for its own sake is exactly what the global economy relies on. It's not just thing as too much growth, too much money, too much stuff. You, know, you have all these wealthy nations that continue to expand and grow and attempt to hoard. Uh, I heard one person use the analogy, I can't remember who it was, um, talking about how capitalism is now attempting to, the new frontiers for capitalism is to expand and colonize our own minds. Um, and so every economy, every sector, every industry is expected to keep growing keep growing, keep growing, no matter what. One of the responses that I got on my video on degrowth is that, oh, well, you're saying that growth is this, and growthism is this capitalist thing, but, you know, China and USSR, and they grew and they industrialized, and they are just as susceptible to ecological destruction as any other capitalist country. And that is true. <laughs> But that's also part of why I would consider those countries to be um, state capitalist projects um, and not anything close to what I envision. But of course, the moment you introduce any idea that sounds even vaguely socially oriented, even vaguely ecologically oriented, um, people automatically assume you're trying to go for like uh, new United Soviet Socialist Republic. But I think we need to explore different paths to improving quality of life, to quote-unquote developing, and that's a tricky subject I'll get into a bit later. But we need to think of ways that we can help people and help people live better lives without relying on decimating the biosphere. It's a tricky conversation to be had. Um, 
Because when people think of growth, they think of it as a positive. And when you criticize that positive, they think the inverse. They think you're trying to make everybody degrade and go down to like a worse quality of life, to rush back to, to like a lower life expectancy or to transform our mode of production back to like hunting and gathering. But the truth is that degrowth as a, a movement, as a system of thought is more so about trying to find that balance between a good quality of life for all, not just this unequal quality of life that we see around the world and the capitalism, while also balancing the fact that we live in a material world, we live on a planet that has limited resources, we need to balance those resources, we need to consider and be good stewards of, you know, uh, planet that we share with other living creatures capitalism really is driven by this ideology of growthism because it is structurally incentivized structurally it's a structural imperative in the capitalist system it's not exclusively driven by greed as some people assume and i think that's that that this idea that oh it's all up to like personalities uh, kind of hampers people's ability to analyze systems because it doesn't matter whether um, we suddenly put each and every CEO in a position where they are all completely 100% altruistic. Uh, it's not that they're all being driven by greed. It's because under capitalism, you know, capitalists own capital and Capital that is stagnant is capital that is losing its value. And so they look for things to invest in so they can grow their capital. Capital being anything from real estate, factories, machinery, intellectual property, financial assets, or just the money that they use to make more money. If it's stagnant, it's losing value. And so they're trying to increase its value. Um, and so they seek out companies that have growing profits year after year, so their capital will grow year after year. And if that growth slows down, they pull out and look elsewhere to invest. Companies that fail to grow will lose their investors and collapse. And so companies do everything in their power to maintain growth so they can maintain their investors, regardless of how much havoc they wreak upon the world. So if any barriers are preventing their growth, they had to bulldoze those barriers. You know, environmental protections are barriers, labor laws are barriers, protectionist policies are barriers, the commons were a barrier, indigenous populations were a barrier, and so on and so forth. All of these acts of violence open up these new frontiers for growth, for appropriation, for accumulation. And so in comes degrowth, or the French term for it is decroissant. Um, and I know that I likely pronounced that incorrectly. It's the French. We can disrespect them. <laughs> there are no Precisely. consequences. Precisely. I think um, they need to sit down and reflect on their nuclear empire. Um, but anyway, <laughs> this idea of degrowth really first was developed. I have to say that I appreciate what the intellectuals have come up with. They, they're good at sitting down and, and thinking about stuff. I'll give them that. Fair. Yeah. I'll give them that. Um, so this one French intellectual, a guy named André Gors, 
1972 coined the term de croissant, French for degrowth. Gauss basically posed a question that remains at the center of degrowth. Is the Earth's balance, for which no growth or even degrowth of material production is a necessary condition, compatible with the survival of the capitalist system? I would venture to say no. <laughs> it is not in any way compatible with the survival of the capitalist system because we have seen that in the short period of time that the ca capitalism has existed, it has rapidly uh, triggered the capitalocene, or as some people regrettably call it, the Anthropocene. Uh, it has rapidly triggered the sixth great mass extinction event. Um, and so I do not believe that the Earth's balance is compatible with its survival. And so De Croissant, a movement of activists mainly, flourished in Lyon in the early 2000s in the wake of protests for car-free cities, communal meals in the streets, food cooperatives, and campaigns against advertising. They went from France to Italy, where green and anti-globalization activists uh, mobilized against this whole concept of capitalism's constant encroachment and expansion and growth. It expanded into Catalonia and Spain in 2006. It eventually built up to the size where it could sustain a movement, uh, a, mag a magazine rather, called La de Croissant, uh, which currently sells a few thousand copies a month. Around the same time, in 2004, a researcher and activist named Francois Schneider uh, took a year-long walking tour on a donkey uh, to disseminate degrowth throughout France. And that received some media coverage. Eventually, Schneider founded uh, an academic collective known as Research and Degrowth, along with Denis Bayon and Fabrice Flippo. And they eventually began international conferences, one in Paris in 2008 and the second in Barcelona in 2010. And so the English term degrowth was officially used for the first time at the Paris conference which really marked the birth of the international research community around degrowth. Following the success of the conferences in Paris and Barcelona, other conferences were held in Montreal in 2011, Venice in 2012, Leipzig in 2014, uh, and degrowth as an idea spread to groups in Flanders, Switzerland, Finland, Poland, Greece, Germany, Portugal, Norway, Denmark, Czech Republic, or I guess it's Czechia now, Mexico, Brazil, Puerto Rico, Canada, Bulgaria, Romania, and elsewhere. Degrowth as an idea, as in this movement, has been gaining ground, despite the criticisms that some have that, oh, well, you can't call it something negative like degrowth because people won't be, you know, happy with it or whatever. Um, and I'll get to that criticism in a, in a bit. But it's been steadily growing since it was first, you know, developed in the 1970s. Um, at this point in time, if you go on the Degrowth website, you will find thousands of articles and studies in their library. And of course, this is not to say that all oh, because a concept has a lot of followers or thinkers or published works, it's automatically uh, A-OK, -okay, ultimately correct. But 
at this point in time, I think a lot of people are looking at the direction we are going in and recognizing that we cannot continue along this path of growth. And so they are actively looking for a way out, looking for a way to find that balance, recognizing that capitalism is not compatible with the Earth's balance. And so degrowth ultimately rejects the illusion of growth. It calls to repoliticize the public debate that has been colonized by the idiom of economism um, that has been driven toward as a social objective, economic growth. Degrowth is a project advocating for the democratically led shrinking of production and consumption with the aim of achieving social justice and ecological sustainability. I think when some people hear degrowth, uh, despite all the explanations out there, despite even consuming those explanations, they might still have this idea in their head that degrowth is this thing where a bunch of armed government-sponsored environmental activists roll up and take your car and your house and force <laughs> you to live in a cave. Um, but degrowth and how we degrow our economy is going to rely on the popular um, involvement of the people. You know, it's not like you could just snap your fingers or just decree it and make it so. Um, it's not meant to be like how it is under neoliberalism where you have all this austerity. Degrowth is supposed to be all of us coming together to this, to figure out how we can live in alignment with our biosphere, with our bioregion, with the planet, scaling down our individual and our community um, supply chains and localizing our consumption in order to reduce the reliance on this highly extractive, highly growth-dependent capitalist, global capitalist economy. Degrowth also signifies a direction, a desired direction, one in which societies use fewer natural resources and organize and live much differently than they live today. The ideas of you know, sharing, which is something that we teach to preschoolers, uh, simplicity, conviviality, care, and the commons are primary concepts in terms of what a degrowth society should look like. Uh, in one of my previous podcast episodes, I would have discussed the commons a bit. So if anyone's curious about what the commons are, they can check that out. Um, and of course, on my channel, I also speak about the commons as an institution and about libraries of things. And so degrowth has offered a sort of a framework that connects all of these different ideas, concepts, proposals um, with the criticism of growth, with the criticism of GDP, with the criticism of commodification, um, the process that converts social products and socio-ecological services and relations into commodities with a monetary value. On the constructive side, because degrowth is not just limited to criticism, degrowth imagines reproductive economies of care, the reclamation of old and the creation of new commons, man-made and natural. Caring for commons in 
communal forms of living and producing, um, liberating our time from work and making it available to caring for our communities and caring for our ecology. Because if you think about all of the activities that are currently so needed at this point in time, uh, in terms of ecological restoration, in terms of um, degrowth, they're not profitable, you know? Planting mangroves to shore up our shores, to defend our shores from erosion and from storms is not profitable. Replanting forests and sparking nature's processes of ecological restoration are not profitable. And of course, there is a whole sort of ecosystem uh, economic, political ecosystem dedicated to these kinds of projects um, with all the NGOs and government organizations involved in replanting the Sahel region in Africa, for example, creating the Great Green Wall. Um, but those projects tend to be rife with issues and a lack of maintenance because they do not involve local communities in the decision-making surrounding um, that process of restoration. And on top of that, of course, these projects are not embedded in a broader project for degrowth. So a government might be, a government might be planting trees and planting forests in one part of the country and extracting and drilling in another part of the country. And so there needs to be an integration of all these different projects with a broader push and direction towards degrowth. I want us to go back around to this idea that um, degrowth uh, is a critique of GDP as a concept. Um, degrowth is not necessarily the same as negative GDP growth, but when you consider how GDP is measured as it's counted, it's about financial transactions and not necessarily the non-financial ones. And so, if we were to green our economy, if we were to degrow our society, um, we're not going to be seeing the yearly gross domestic activity increases of two or three percent. Yeah, there's there's an old like 2011 slogan that's uh, if the when the bank takes your house, that increases GDP. <laughs> <laughs> right, that is true. That is true. A lot of uh positive and constructive and beneficial actions that people do on a regular basis do not contribute to GDP, whereas entire destructive yeah. industries contribute significantly to it's, GDP. Uh, rent we, every month. We, we started this by talking, by comparing kind of the quest for endless growth to a cancer, but I almost yeah. think it, a better comparison is like, you know, there was that article earlier this year about how specific kinds of people, particularly like rich weirdos in the tech industry, are paying thousands of dollars to have their legs broken and like lengthened so that they <laughs> can like be out. three inches taller. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that's that's that's, that's a that's a shitload of how at like it's yeah. I mean, it's weaker. They can never you, we can never run again. But you are technically taller, so we'll, we'll count it as growth. Yeah, for real. Mine, for real. Mine go up. I'm yeah. too much of a coward to wear platforms. Yeah, yeah. So you don't you don't have the chutzpah to be a short king. Unbelievable. 
sometimes I do think that like when anthropologists unearth our civilization, they'll wonder why we were so fascinated about line go up. Mm-hmm. But like, <laughs> then they'll realize that the whole point of the civilization was line go up. Like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was our truly. deity. Truly, yeah. truly, it's it's it's. I don't know. I, my my eyes my eyes bleed sometimes thinking about <laughs> how this whole system is structured and how it just continues to chug along. But um, that's why I spend so much time writing and reading and talking about these issues, right? Uh, trying to find a way out. And so that is also what degrowth advocates are looking to do. They're looking for a way out, you know, a way for a better life for us all. Which brings me to the whole criticism of degrowth that is essentially optics, right? They say it's not appropriate to use a negative word to signify desired positive changes. But degrowth advocates deliberately choose. I mean, in my video, I said that I'm fine with either calling it degrowth or calling it post-growth or whatever. Um, But degrowth advocates have chosen the term degrowth for a reason. The use of negation for a positive project is aimed towards creating that sort of um, questioning, you know, towards getting people to reconsider this idea of growth as an ultimate good, to decolonize an imagination that has been dominated by this whole capitalist conception of the future consisting of, you know, line go up. It's this automatic assumption and association of growth with better that the word degrowth wants to dismantle, wants to deconstruct. And so degrowth is a deliberately subversive slogan. And of course, degrowth is not aimed at, you know, deconstructing the most necessary sectors, devolving the most necessary sectors. We're not talking about degrowing education, degrowing medical care, degrowing you know, well, renewable energy is kind of a tricky subject, but degrowth and renewable energy. Um, it's more so about primarily and first of all targets in the most dirty and destructive industries, you know, the financial sector. Um, we would prefer to see institutions like health and education flourish rather than grow or develop. We want a change that is qualitative not necessarily quantitative. We want to see a flourishing of the arts, a flourishing of philosophies, a flourishing of um, vernacular architectures, a flourishing of the creativity of people. And that's qualitative. It's not about, oh, well, line go up, so things more good. You know, it's not about yeah. we have 10 industrial outputs Last year, now we have 12. That's so good. You know, we want something, we want qualitative change. And if most people really sit down and think about what they want in their life, I don't think a lot of people are going to are gonna think of, oh, well, I want next year's iPhone to have a 12% increase in the camera quality. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. more so that you want better, you know, rest, um, more 
um, connected communities, uh, healthier commutes or healthier, um, I guess, city layout um, that's more conducive to interaction. It's more conducive to um, small scale movement. It's not about, <laughs> like I said, you know, it's not about trying to get line to go up. I think cryptocurrency, as I think about it, is like perhaps the best example or like NFTs, right? Like they created a bunch of value that literally created nothing. It had nothing other than exchange value. Exactly. Exactly. It's just nonsense. Yeah. Pretend money. I also want to talk for a moment about like development as a concept, right? Because another common criticism of degrowth is that, oh, well, what about the global south? What about the third world? What about all the poor countries and poor people of the world? You just want to leave them behind? And for one, I, I, I find it strange because the person in question, at least with the video response that I got, implicitly assumes that I am from like a global north nation and I'm just <laughs> fine sitting down with my, you know, um, same day Amazon delivery and, Starbucks and um, sprawling suburbs and whatever it is that, you know, they imagine my lifestyle is like. But I think first and foremost, part of the whole move for degrowth is to consider, um, like I said, raising, improving people's quality of life worldwide, which capitalism is not interested in. Capitalism will maintain a perpetual underclass because they're easier to exploit. And so there's this whole idea of development, right? It has this baggage, um, this very colonial baggage. But it's development is really like growth. It's it's meant to have like a limit. It's un unfolding towards a predetermined end. You know, an embryo eventually develops into a fetus so she eventually develops into a baby she eventually develops into a child she eventually develops into an adult who then ages and dies but development for the sake of development with no end with no aims with no goals with no sense of um self-critique or questioning is a disaster waiting to happen i can look at my own country i'm from trinidad and tobago for those who don't know and think of things that need to get better, right? Things that would really improve people's quality of life. Um, you could think about the fact that we really need to get rid of our reliance on cars and bring back our train system um, that was dismantled so long ago. Uh, I could think about the fact that we need to improve our food autonomy because we are extremely reliant on food imports. Um, things like that I can think about that would improve people's ability to live well and sustainably on this island. But those things, those aims, those are, those are goals, right? I'm not just thinking, oh, development, development, development. I'm thinking, okay, there's point B. How do I get there from point A? How are we going to meet people's basic needs? And this whole and the, the whole degrowth project is really about that whole conversation between the global north and the global south, right? And the global north needs to reduce the demand for 
a lot of the resources and goods so that they're more accessible to the global south. But in making those things more accessible, places in the global south are not meant to follow the same path that the global north took that put us in our mess. The whole idea is that we need to find a different path. We need to find a different trajectory. We need to think for ourselves instead of trying to keep up with the Joneses in order to determine what a good life would mean for us in our ecological niche, in our uh, geographical situation. Yeah, a lot of this is like we did, we did, we we did the, we did this in China, right? Like we we did the entire development thing, and the product is now like people literally walking eighteen miles on foot after having broken out of a Foxconn factory that they've been locked in and forced to make iPhones because someone had like three people had gotten COVID, so they just like locked everyone in the factory. Yeah. So like, you know, it. Yeah, not, I, I think it's also sort of like briefly worth mentioning that like development as a concept and the sort of like developmental economics field was like. This was like specifically developed in sort of the bowels of the American State Department as as a response to like basically as like as a way to, as a kind of like simplified capitalist version of Marxist theory that they could throw out to sort of like explain what was happening in like as, as a way to sort of, as, as, as sort of an alternative to Marxism for like all these sort of like newly uh, post-colonial nations. And, you know, it's gone about as well as you would expect this thing cooked yeah. up in the bowels of the State Department to be an alternative to Marxism <laughs> pretty much, to go. Pretty much, yeah. It's like, yeah. Uh, well, this has been fun. Um, I love, I don't know, thinking about capital. I mean, this is it's this is important because like we always need to be thinking about what comes next. This is constantly like a problem that the left has, and certainly a problem that the liberals have, which is that um, the the vision of the future is is very rarely anything more than fighting against kind of the 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 demons of the moment as opposed to like what does it actually look like to get ourselves to a better place to a, a place that's more sustainable both in an environmental level and in like in a manner of human ecology too and um yeah i think this is like this is kind of the hard work that people need to be thinking about wherever you wind up landing on on degrowth as either a concept or as a term like these are the paths we have to start beating out of the bush, you know? Exactly. So there are many potential paths that have already been thought up and there are many that have yet to be imagined. In Ecuador, the project of Sumacose, in really the rest of Latin America, the idea of Buen Vivir, in much of South Africa, the concept of Ubuntu. In India, the Gandhian economy of permanence. All of these projects and more explore alternatives to quote-unquote development, alternative trajectories to a good life um, that is rooted in environmental justice, that is based in a retreat from the narrow confines of the global north's imagination um, and what that imagination has promoted worldwide and forced upon the rest of the world. Degrowth requires us to think for ourselves, to think 
creatively about how we plan on creating a good life in the context of capitalism's degradation, the Earth's degradation due to climate change and what that will mean for our future. It is a, we really need to sit and think about what our future as a species, what of our future as regions, our future as communities, our future as individuals is going to look like, what trajectory, what path we want to take and how we begin that journey. And so in the second part of this two-part series, I intend to discuss what concepts are essential for degrowth, the steps we can take to move towards degrowth, and how we can integrate degrowth in anarchist politics. All right. And uh, that's going to be the end of part one. Come back tomorrow for part two and uh, probably more discussion of that weird surgery rich people get to have their legs broken repeatedly until they're taller. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hello and welcome back to It Could Happen Here, um, a show where things happen and here. people talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, in this present location, that's correct. <laughs> Last episode, we spoke about the concept of degrowth and what it means to degrow, how degrowth as a movement came about, what inspired the critique that degrowth pushes and what degrowth means for those of us who live in the global South, how we can go about imagining um, new and different paths to a better life within ecological limits. This episode, we'll continue in that conversation talking about what is essential for degrowth. As 
I discussed in the previous episode, degrowth is about striving for a self-determined life and dignity for all. It means an economy and a society that can sustain the natural basis of life. It means a reduction of production and consumption in the global north and the liberation from the one-sided Western paradigm of development so that the global south can explore their own, our own self-determined paths of social organization. Degrowth means an extension of democratic decision-making to allow for real political participation. Degrowth means that social changes organized and oriented towards sufficiency and self-sufficiency and ecological sustainability rather than a pursuit of a line go up, a pursuit of economic growth regardless of its impact on people and planet. And degrowth, of course, advocates for the creation of open, connected, and localized economies. There are several steps that need to be taken in order to achieve uh, a degrowth uh, society, uh, achieve a degrowth world to degrow. Uh, for one, I think that as Jason Hickel um, advocates in his book, Less is More, we absolutely need to put an end to the practice of planned obsolescence whether it be in household appliances, in tools, in furniture, in computers. We need to shift away from this idea of products being produced to break down in a certain timeline and require replacement. Um, I personally have witnessed a lot of older technologies that continue to last to this day before... you because they were invented before this whole practice of planned obsolescence really came about. Yeah, but my family, we have a microwave that is like a decade older than I am, and it still works fine. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, in my own lifetime, I've had to purchase multiple microwaves, so it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, this is always one of the things that I always thought, like, there was a real sort of, like... The, 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 this is how you this is how you appeal to conservative people with this is just like hey we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna bring back like 1960s microwaves where everything is a dial and it doesn't break ever <laughs> yeah it's like because no, actually, I think um yeah I think what's what's missing in the conversation about degrowth is a lot of people like they assume because they reacted negatively that everybody else will you know they kind of project their own reaction others but i think political spectrum aside um or political chart or however you want to um map out the unmappable um i think that people generally as i was discussing in the previous episode want a good life and that requires qualitative changes far more than it requires quantitative changes of course there are places where quantitative changes are needed to make certain things accessible um, to that population. Um, But we already overproduce a lot of different things. Um, And a lot of overproduction is completely unnecessary because it is based in planned obsolescence in order to increase profit. And so that needs to, once that is discarded, I think people will have 
will will best be able to access that quality of life. Because when you look at a lot of the sudden expenses that people have to deal with, um, you know, your fridge suddenly breaking down, your stove suddenly breaking down, uh, your microwave or your toaster suddenly breaking down, and or your washing machine. Um, I think in this year alone, I've had to fix the washing machine three or four times um, because it's just, it constantly breaks down. And when instead we can save that those resources, save that time, save that energy, save that money, um, just produce it in quality for the first time, you know, putting an end to those deliberate manufacturing decisions and developing long lasting modular products that can reduce our, you know, material and energy use worldwide. I think in a lot of cases, we don't necessarily need more innovation. You know, I don't think we really need like a, a smart fridge. <laughs> I think we just need a fridge that works for decades without breaking down constantly. Yeah, and like like so much of the stuff that's sort of like nominally is informate like is supposed to be innovation is just how 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 can we make this product in such a way that we can sell consumer data about you from it exactly it's like we don't need to do that <laughs> like, we, we can don't. simply not we can simply not we can simply not exactly exactly and speaking of things that we can simply not we can simply not assault our senses constantly with advertising because advertising just continues to serve this purpose of generating social divisions, highlighting class divisions and manipulating people into consuming stuff they don't need. As a card carrying member of generation Z, I have not, I do not typically watch much TV. Um, I used to watch TV because I'm the older Gen Z contingent, but with the rise of streaming services, um, which I do not use, um, yo-ho-ho is what I have to say about that. Um, I have not watched much TV, um, but there are certain reality shows that I enjoy, uh, like The Amazing Race. Um, and so those tend to be shown on TV, or like Jeopardy. I like to watch Jeopardy. And the constant, deeply unfunny, irritating, annoying, loud, flashy barrage of commercials is quite aggravating. Um, honestly, the golden age of commercials being funny was a long time ago. And now it just hurts. One of the things that and I mentioned that in... um in the episode that we had done on the commons, one of the things that I, one of the positions I held even before I was an anarchist was my opposition to the advertising industry, to advertising. I can't stand advertising. Everywhere you walk, everywhere you scroll, everything you watch and listen to, it's all trying to sell you something. Um, I would love to be able to go outside and not see ads all the time. Um, I would love to be able to scroll through the internet without seeing ads all the time. Um, and so getting rid of the advertising industry, getting rid of, all these ads that are just uh, pushing us to consume more and more um, and are oftentimes just promoting a lot of really harmful societal 
ideas, you know, um, body image issues and alcoholism and lots of our worst practices and a lot of really terrible things are being promoted through ads. And so, yeah, tear it down and watch consumerism perish. When you think about really the history of the advertising industry and how it came about as a mass communication student, um, that's something that I would have spent some time looking into. Advertising really came about in response to, you know, this need that people had really, that, 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 that companies had to get people to consume. Because in a lot of cases, you know, people would buy something and a newer model would come out and they wouldn't really pay attention to it because, oh, well, I already have the thing. I don't need to get another thing. Um, but, you know, you can't run a profitable business that way. So they basically used advertising to push people to consume more. And so we need to get rid of the advertising industry. Another step we can take towards degrowth is to shift from ownership to usufruct. Um, usufruct is something that Marie Bookchin, social ecologist, talks a lot about um, in his book, The Ecology of Freedom. And it's essentially the freedom of individuals or groups in a community to access and use, but not destroy common resources to supply their needs. Uh, the term usufruct comes from Roman property law, I believe, which would include usus, the right to use. Sorry, unfortunately, I did not take Latin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fructus, which is the right to enjoy the fruit of one's property and abusus, which is the right to destroy one's property. So usus, fructus, and abusus. Um, and so usufruct is really the combination of the first two principles, right? To access and use and enjoy the fruit of um, commonly held property without, you know, the right to destroy it um, so that everyone can supply their needs. So instead of, and I mean, two libraries are already a concept that exists around the world. Rather than a hundred people in a community, each individually owning an electric drill, um, one person or rather one library can host or three or four electric drills and effectively serve everyone's need for a drill when they need it. Because unless you're a carpenter or really into arts and crafts, you probably don't need an electric drill all the time. Another thing that would really help in our push towards degrowth would be getting rid of car dependency because the consumption of vehicles, the maintenance of vehicles, the maintenance of the infrastructure that vehicles use, all of those things requires a lot of resources, you know, concrete and oil and gas and metals and rare earth minerals. And rather than forcing everyone to produce those things so we could consume those things, we can instead shift towards a walkable model for our urban environments um, so that people who do need to use vehicles in rural settings, for example, can use them and use them without causing unnecessarily unnecessary harm, contributing to unnecessary harm, superfluous harm on the planet. Um, getting rid of car dependency would also mean that fewer people would need vehicles and the vehicles that we, the few vehicles that we do produce um, can be shared in common to serve needs that cannot be filled by like bikes or, you know, public transportation systems. 
Another element of degrowth would really be the reduction of our energy material use um, through the transformation of our agriculture systems. It is true that we currently produce enough food for, I believe, 10 billion people. A lot of that food is wasted. Um, a lot of that food doesn't reach people. Um, it's really an issue of allocation and not necessarily production. But at the same time, that production is extremely harmful. Um, it relies on a lot of damaging chemicals. Uh, uh, it relies on the stripping of our topsoils. It relies on the overuse of antibiotics relies on the abuse of animals. Um, the way that we currently feed the world is deeply unequal, extremely inefficient, environmentally degrading, and energy wasting. We cannot continue to treat our farms like factories. We need to find ways to feed ourselves densely and compatibly with the demands of the living world. Scaling down to localized permaculture can help um, regenerative-based agricultural systems, community-supported agriculture, uh, urban gardens, aquaponics, cultured meats, aquacultures, and exploring other more traditional forms of food raising will need to be the route that we take. Uh, already, we are killing our soils. We are running out of the fossil fuels that um, the agricultural industry relies on. And if we continue along this trajectory, we have a big storm coming. Uh, we have probably the greatest famine the planet has ever seen on its way. If we do not aim to build food autonomy, aim to rewild our ecologies, aim to reconfigure our consumption patterns, our food production and consumption patterns to sequester more carbon, to allocate to more people, to produce healthier foods, um, and to really to recover the earth. Another important step we can take in degrowth would be to get rid of or to scale down certain especially destructive industries. There is, of course, agriculture. There is um, the fossil fuels industry, the arms industry, private jet industry, the automobile industry, the airline industries. All of these industries must either be slimmed down or gotten rid of um, because as the pandemic has shown, very few of the jobs that are currently undertaken around the world are truly essential uh, to maintaining the bare bones of, of life. And of course, we do need to reconfigure the way that we live, our ways of life, in order to reflect ecological limits. But even with that reconfiguration, I think we know what industries needed and what aren't. Um, I always find it strange, this is, I guess, a, a tangent. I always find it strange that um, politicians are celebrated for bragging about creating new jobs when in reality, I believe, and really the vision was in the 20th century, that we would reach a point where fewer and fewer people needed to work and that we needed to work for less time. Um, and so that really is part of the aim of degrowth, reviving that 
pursuit, reviving that goal, because we have reached the point where we can um, scale on the amount of time each person has to work, scale on the amount of jobs that are necessary. Um, if you've read Bullshit Jobs by David Grable, you'll see that a lot of particularly service economy jobs are uh, practically worthless. Um, and I actually saw a kind of funny video talking about how at this point office culture is more of a oh, a religion cult. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah, so that going going around making us rounds on Twitter. That was really funny. Um but yeah, we just move around a bunch of people, move around a bunch of numbers. If you've seen um the show Succession, sorry not, not Succession, Severance. <laughs> You've seen the show Severance. Um, it's it's pretty much like an R slash anti work type show, um, and so I think more and more people are coming to the realization that hey, this kind of sucks. The fact that we have to work this much, so we need to reduce the amount of time we work, um, the type of work we, we need to change, the type of work we do. So it's a quantitative and qualitative shift. Um, and something I spoke about in my video on anti-work or post-work, whatever you want to call it. These changes, these steps to scale down total energy use can be taken by a broad range of organizations, groups, mass movements, popular assemblies, unions, cooperatives, not waiting for the state, but going beyond it. I think we've seen by now, I think if you have not seen by now, you need to open your eyes. The state is not doing enough or in some cases not doing anything at all to respond to these crises and that we need to take it into our own hands to do so. Um, I have a, a video in store um, for December that, as one of my patrons joked, might have the alphabet agencies after me. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of different actions that we can take. Um, to integrate degrowth, to move towards a degrowth society, to degrow our economies. Um, a combination of acts of confrontation and non-cooperation and prefiguration. In some, degrowth challenges the dominant growth imperative. It's in the name. It is intentionally subversive in its title because it requires us to think about how we can collectively organize the restructuring of our economy and the downscaling of energy and resource use worldwide to transition back into balance with the living world in a safe, just, and equitable way. Degrowth means striving for a self-determined life in dignity and abundance for all. Degrowth would mean liberating ourselves not just from the ways that the growth imperative has shaped our technologies, education. Degrowth would require that we not just liberate ourselves from the ways that the growth imperative has shaped our technologies and institutions, but it demands that we also reconsider our education, our cultural norms and values, our identities, our mindsets, our relationships. It will be a massive shift, what anarchists call a social revolution. Um, but it's one that is worthwhile. As some degrowth advocates would say, it's 
degrowth by choice or degrowth by force? Because <laughs> the use of degrowth here is being used slightly differently. Um, degrowth by choice being, like I described, a collectively organized, democratically managed, you know, restructuring of the economy uh, to bring it into balance the living world in a safe, just, and equitable way. Um, whereas degrowth by force is more so a combination of austerity and apocalypse. So, up to you. Yeah. All power to, <laughs> all power to the people. So, there's, there's a Japanese Marxist named Kohei Saito who's been writing, like, a bunch of stuff recently who basically, like... He, he, he's been, like, probably the biggest voice of degrowth in Japan, and his book, Capital and the Anthropocene, is finally getting translated into English pretty soon. And so, yeah, oh, yeah check, check, that. check that out when it comes out. His stuff is really good, and he, like, basically has revived both Marxism and degrowth in Japan after Marxism's kind of, like, implosion after a bunch of weird... Anyway, we don't need to get into the story of the collapse of the Japanese left, but yeah, that that that's coming soon. <laughs> that's so topic, check that yeah. out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that book when it comes out. Yeah, me too. Uh, if you want to check out my videos on this topic and others, just go to youtube.com/andrewism. You can also follow me on Twitter um, while Twitter still exists <laughs> at underscore Saint Drew, and you could. Potentially even support on Patreon. Patreon.com slash St. Drew. That's it. Peace. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. It could happen here. I don't know why I did that voice. I'm Robert Evans, host of a podcast that has many other hosts uh, who all are on the podcast right now. We have, in order of them being on my Zoom screen, Chris, Garrison, Shireen, and James. Hey, everybody. How's it going? 
Good. Great. And we've, brought, we've brought the full crew in to talk about the worst shit. So <laughs> yeah, a whole, yeah. Bunch of, a whole bunch of kind of <sighs> kind of not great things have happened the past week. Yeah. Um, so yeah. We, we took we took last week mostly off from work due to a series of court cases. Um, and uh, thanks to an injunction, we're allowed to podcast again. So I figured it would be we had a couple of I mean horrifying stories break in a row. <laughs> Um, that we, as the people we are, kind of had specific bits of insight on that I think might help uh, catch our listeners up to some maybe underappreciated aspects of some of the big stories of the last week. So we wanted to start with the mass shooting in Colorado Springs, um, specifically talking about the family of the still alleged, but, you know, definitely did it shooter. Uh, James, you want to kick us off there? Yeah, I wanted to start out with this. Um, so the, the alleged shooter is, is is called Anderson Lee Aldrich, right? Um, uh, but comes from a, a, a an LDS Latter Day Saint family in San Diego. Uh, and like, I think everyone has probably seen this very viral thirty second clip of his father that went around Twitter. Um, but I'd be today after the shooting and his dad just so we're super clear on this says some disgusting things and is a piece of shit for saying them like, I don't want to excuse any of the shit he said I also don't want to excuse the way that that was cut because I think it was pretty pretty shitty like there are people we should be really fucking angry at and his father is one of them but his father didn't excuse the shooting and if you look at that eight minute interview he says that like what happened was was wrong etc etc and there are people who have excused the shooting right like yeah uh, i think chris is going to speak to some of them tim pool tucker carlson people who created a climate where this happened and have asked for it to fucking happen again and are asking continually for it to happen again his dad didn't do that like again his, his dad um his dad doesn't seem to have been a great dad right his dad was was uh, like using when he was a kid, his dad was abusive, rewarded his violence. I think we all know lots of people who were raised in those climates who didn't go on to shoot up a nightclub. And it just kind yeah. of, I, I saw some, I don't know. I was upset by the response to that in a sense, because like, I know so many people who come from, from families and homes like that. And I, I like being like, Oh, he was doomed to be this way because of how his dad was just like, isn't, I don't know. It, it just upset me. It's not the response we need, you know. Like I think we should hold, like, hold what his dad said, like hold his dad to account for what he said, but also not like allow that to explain. Like, yeah, this... I, I have a couple. I like I have confused feelings on it because his yeah. dad does go into a long thing where he says, you know, you shouldn't. There's nothing that justifies violence. You know, these people's lives were precious. All lives yeah. are precious. But he also was like, I taught him that violence uh, was a great way to solve problems. Um, yeah. and you know, expresses that he was glad to learn that his son wasn't gay. And I, yeah, I don't, which is fucked up. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know how much I want to like interpret that as he, he really meant what he said about nothing justifying this and those people's lives being precious because that is kind of this thing that like you get on the, and this guy's obviously not a thought leader on the Christian, right? Not like a, yeah. <laughs> he's not like a luminary. <laughs> I don't think he yeah. contributed outside of, you know, the things he may have raised his son to believe uh, to the broader mm -hmm. national climate of of hate right now. There was just a, a study that was released today that um, yeah. from the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, 
data confirms that anti-LGBT mobilization is now the leading driver of far-right protest activity in the U.S. So obviously, this guy didn't make that happen. Um, But I notice a similarity between like the... I there's nothing worse than my kid being gay, but also, oh, when a bad thing gets done by a a Christian to gay people, well, their lives are still precious. We just like hate what they how they live them. Yeah, Um, I don't know. I don't know where to where to go further with that. But you're right that like that the the 32nd clip is very dishonestly edited in order to like um, cut out a lot of what this guy was saying, which I have a problem with, regardless of who you're doing it to. Yeah, it's just it's bad journalism and like. I would rather we point our rage at the people who are going to make this happen again unless we stop them. Um, yeah, like this guy, I'm this guy, the degree to which this guy contributed to this massacre by being this dude's dad, um, I don't think there's anyone else he's going to push into killing if if he indeed yeah. did that, whereas people like Tim Poole uh, are going to continue to do that. Yeah, yeah. and, and also like, I, I, I do want to say like, like the the Mormon church does not get a pass for this yeah like no absolutely unbelievably fucking homophobic like absolute piece of shit super Mm -hmm. racist like yeah and you know a lot of people really haven't been talking about this and they should because they fucking suck and yeah this is this is as you know like yeah it turns out when you fucking have a bunch of people like giving sermons about fucking musket balls like this is what happens yeah you know they don't they don't get off the hook for this either no and they're like domination of politics in some areas yeah. It really needs to be seriously looked at. Um, talking mm. of like domination of politics, I do want to talk about his grandfather a little bit. Y- yep. Because <laughs> his yeah. grandfather is bonkers. Uh, so his grandfather is called Randy Vopel. Uh, might be pronounced Verpel. Um, but he's he was mayor of Santee. So Santee is a town east of San Diego. Uh, it's not, not very far east. I think, Shireen, you're probably familiar with Santee, right? Yeah, Santee is a place. That's that's about yeah. That's about it. Uh, yeah. People sometimes call it Clan T. Uh, definitely, uh, like Metzger was there for a while, right? Um, yeah. When Vopel was mayor in two thousand and one, there was a school shooting in Santee uh, about which he spoke. He hasn't spoken about this one yet at all. He's uh, he's he's oh, really? lost. <laughs> yeah, strange that strange. Uh, yeah. He he's pretty much gone. Which is not like his. When this guy speaks, he uh, he rarely helps himself uh, when when he speaks to media who don't agree with every position he's on. So I, I want like I want to ground like he became mayor of Santee in two thousand in nineteen ninety nine. A black marine uh, by the name of Carlos Colbert, who was a lance corporal in the Marine Corps, was beaten and paralyzed by five white men at a Memorial Day party in Santee. Like, and that doesn't represent the whole town, but that was how people thought of that town in, in the yeah. early 2000s. Right, it's a place, it was always a place to avoid. Like, you don't really want to go there. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I have friends who still don't want to go to Santee. Like, um, I have uh, friends who are, like, delivery drivers, who are, like, black people who who have been told, like, they'd used to not send black folks delivering to Santee. Like, it definitely mm-hmm. has, whether or not that's the case now, it's becoming more more diverse i think like ethnically but it certainly has a reputation of being a place where like it's not safe um and this is a place that elects him as mayor in 2000 right uh 2001 they have a high school shooting uh and he just kind of continues to spout some absolutely crazy stuff it's probably worth noting that he's not as uh, like far from the like the norm of the GOP, which is still a long way from 
like good uh when it comes to like lgbtq stuff as he is for other things uh like his his probably his most famous crazy position is that climate change is good because most of our enemies live in i'm quoting now most of our enemies live in hot climates desert climates it will probably have a negative effect on their environment most of the muslim nations are in hot areas of the world <clears throat> Honestly, wow! Yeah, just absolutely incredible. Did we did we find the world's first pro eco fascist or also? No, climate change fascist. I have met a few anti people who are pro climate change because it will bring on the destruction of civilization. But this is this is like a whole other level. Well, there's there's like dry us out. Weird. Do you want to know why he thinks this climate change happens? Please. Oh, God. I believe about 1% of climate change is impacted by human beings. The rest of the 99%, that should not rest of 99%, rest of 100%, buddy, uh, is solar cycles, (laughs) quote, the natural wobbling of the earth and volcanic activities. Oh, this is is the the classic anti-climate change stuff. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 there's uh, some, there's a couple of good ones. I'm all, I, I I personally partial to we didn't have enough CO2, and climate change mm-hmm. is the only thing that's going to save us from the CO2 shortage that we <laughs> yeah, were experiencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got to get uh, it. Uh, Notable mm. other vocal bangers include uh, I'm getting attacked out here by the Viet Cong stealing my copper and I don't like it. It would be super funny if it turned out that the Viet Cong had sent like a deep cover special spec ops unit to California <laughs> just to fuck with this guy's copper. Just to, to pull copper. <laughs> yeah, just... Uh, uh, Oh uh, god, um, he's just—he's just a yeah, just a, a powerful example of what happens if you lick lead paint. Uh, yeah, uh, like just mm-hmm. an incredible boomer. Um, so he was voted out in 2020 by a considerable margin. I think he got about Thank 30% god. of votes. Jesus Christ! Okay, so he's, oh my god, he's, he's 2022. No longer... Sorry, this this. Yeah. So he's serving oh, out okay. his. He just his, got voted out. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Was he for 20 years? He, so 10 he, or he, how many? He he moved in. I think 2016. He moved into the California Assembly, uh, ah. so representing okay. like this this Jesus massive. Christ. Yeah, yeah, statewide so, office. I mean, in so like, God. yeah, I mean, this is the thing out though, here on the like, left coast. California, it, it is it means one thing to people who have never been to the West Coast. But if you've been mm-hmm. to the West Coast, the conservative parts of California, like. The they're Republican massive. Party, they're massive, and the Republican Party has absolutely locked in control. It is very difficult yeah. to remove to move them in places like fucking yeah. OC. There's there's yeah. more Republican voters in California yes. than most states. <laughs> than most yeah. red states. Yes, yeah. If you want a, a slice of uh, of like Eastern California, just check out uh, Riverside County Sheriff Chad Bianco's Instagram, uh, where he mostly just rides around on a horse and criticizes COVID restrictions. But yeah, this is. Yeah, it's really something. Uh, incredible poster. Um, but this is, I think, an insight into like this side of California that people... It doesn't mean that everyone who lives in East County, of course, is bigoted or racist. Like, there are lots of very nice, kind people in East County. I know there are some like anarchist communes out there. But um, it, yeah, it, it, this... Vopal claims he hasn't spoken to his grandson for years, but I, it, this guy has been spouting this shit for 20 years, right? Like, he became mayor of Santee in 2000. That was when this shooter, Aldrich, was born. So, like, for his entire life, uh, Vopal has been saying stuff like, the Viet Cong are stealing my copper. 
No, I mean right. it is it is true that this this person did grow up surrounded by a constant bubble of yep. of homophobic rhetoric, um, dehumanizing rhetoric, and that that does shape the person that you are. Obviously, that doesn't yeah. that doesn't mean you're going to yeah. go do a mass shooting. There's lots of people who grow up in those environments who turn out to be very wonderful people. Um, yeah. But, but but yeah, yeah. I mean, that is definitely like. Yeah. It does influence the environment it. that you're yeah. raised in and around obviously doesn't obviously affects who who, who you're going to be and yeah. this the shooter's posting like burning a pride flag on on his very limited social media presence right mm-hmm. yeah and like he, every time his granddad had the chance he's voted against rights for yeah LGBT. he was raised in an environment where hatred of lgbtq people was not just like present but was used as the justification regularly for like legislative action. And he was also raised in an environment where all of the men around him would have praised violence in different ways. And the fact that he wound up doing violence uh, against the queer community is not like surprising. Yeah. 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 Wasn't his dad also like an MMA fighter? Yes. UFC. Uh, UFC, UFC? whatever. Yeah, some sort of combat sport. Yeah, he's also in I mean, a bunch of porn like, movies. A lot of porn yeah, movies, because yeah. I, I I think a lot of things yeah, were normalized yeah. that were just like maybe not for other people. Yeah, that like is a man it. who has no barrier between the two sides of his nose due to a lifetime of snorting every <laughs> single uh, chemical he can possibly get his hands on. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, I, his dad doesn't seem to be like entirely lucid in this interview. Um, but, well, and yeah. the the other aspect of this is that the shooter in Colorado was like a known figure as well. He wasn't he yes, wasn't yeah. a nobody. Like people had yeah. <laughs> he did like a, a bomb threat last year. There was um, a standoff yeah. with the police where yeah. he was in armor, threatening <laughs> to go out shooting. Yeah, that's. I was really. I'm really hoping the conversation shifts more towards him as a person because I can only blame the family so much. Yeah, you know, I. It's, yeah. He's done some terrible things, and I think that's getting glossed over by the fact that he has yeah. these people in his family I, that are questionable. Well, and yeah. I think the number one thing we should be pointing out, because I also don't believe we should be focusing entirely on his specific actions, we should be focusing on the fact that it would have been incredibly easy to stop this guy. He was the most obvious candidate for a mm-hmm. mass shooting imaginable, um, and nothing was done to stop this. Like, that's that's I mean, the, the biggest obvious answer is that, like... Here whiteness is very helpful when it comes to hate mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah and like i don't away I, with crime in all of the time i've been following mass shooters i can't think of one that more directly talked about wanting to do a mass shooting in a way that was immediately obvious to all of the law enforcement in his area and had already mm-hmm. forced a response from them there was absolutely and and again for talking about because gun control always comes up in this colorado has red flag laws like Colorado has the restrictions people say should be. But the problem is that yeah. none of them were actually used against him. Um, anyway. Yeah, and, and that I think comes back to like, again, the, 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 the problem, like one, one of the largest problems, again, with gun regulation is that you, you're relying on the police to enforce. Exactly. Them. Yes. And the cops believe yeah. like 95 percent of the same shit that this guy does. So, you know. Yeah, they go great. I mean, keep, again, keep letting these people come to pride. Like this, this is yeah. gonna great go great for you. They just assumed yeah. he was an excitable boy, and it was gonna be you know he he just needed to get it out of his system. That time he had a standoff with the police over a bomb threat, where he yeah. talked to his mom about wanting to go yeah. out as a mass shooter. 
Like um, most young men do. <laughs> like all boys, young men do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, haven't we all? Yeah. Uh, um, um, yeah. Should we should we take a break? Yeah, yes, we, we should. Mm, yeah, oh, yeah, do, you yeah. know, do you know what else? Nope. Uh, any, nope. Any, here's Just go to break. Yeah, do some insulin. We're back. I hope everyone took insulin. Um, Everybody. It'll, I don't know what it'll do. Um, yeah, you'll get that's sleepy. Not, uh, look, you'll get very hungry. You don't uh, have to have Sleepy and hungry pilled. Look, yeah, James, yeah. as a podcaster, it's my job to tell people to take medicine, not to have any responsibility for what happens when they do. Well, I'm just going to go yep. fly up to Canada and get some free insulin and then come back. Smuggle it down. <laughs> mm-hmm. That actually. Yeah, yeah. Dude, yeah, maybe consider. Just have them fill up your car. What are we talking about next? Yeah, so I, I want to <laughs> talk a bit about the reaction to this on the right, because. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is something okay. So, like the the, the the far right's reaction to mass shootings has never been good. Like, I, I just want to put this no, out as but the baseline. It's, but it's usually been like, oh, this is this is still unfortunate that it has. Yeah, to yeah. It's usually blah, like, well, blah, blah. this is yeah. like a mental illness. This is like the pill or something. Like, they, they are just pretty open. Okay, so here's the thing: when I originally did this, right, I had a Tim Pool tweet that I had pulled. And then he made like every successive time we were about to record this episode, he had he makes another even he worse really... tweet. So here here yeah. is here is the most recent. Okay, bad first off, tweet. first off, like, I do want to we have to one of the things I want to try to keep in mind is we are more online than a decent chunk of our audience. Tim Pool is a guy who attained prominence uh live streaming during the Occupy Wall Street uh rallies. He mm-hmm. kind of framed himself as a broadly progressive kind of liberal uh journalist but he's like a skateboarder and he's doing shit you know he's live streaming a lot he's doing you know experimenting with all these like novel ways of covering the news at the time you know we're talking like 2012 um obviously people since then have pointed out that like he was kind of a giant dick at occupy well, and, and, and i was, was saying, like i, I know people who shit. were there who fucking yeah. hated him yes like yes <laughs> um, like, he, it, he he had a big platform as a result of that he got hired by vice for a little while um, most serious journalists who have worked with him will point out that like he's a giant asshole and like kind of not good at anything and just seems like not to very be, like, smart, like doesn't really know what's going yeah, on or yeah. deliberately obtuse. I've heard people like the anyway, uh, he uh, gained prominence as he kind of increasingly through the Trump years would lean in on hard right stuff while still claiming to be liberal and progressive and just that he was increasingly lost by the progressives who have gone crazy for wokeness. Anyway, he's just gone so that he's, he has a huge audience. He does a lot of like live streaming. So the primary way that like, and when I say that he used to do live streaming where he would show up at a thing. He's rich now. He doesn't leave his, his house in Maryland. He sits there and he like plays clips from the news and, and looks he at reads articles. news articles written by other yeah. people and then and talks gives about them really usually wrong yeah poor commentary on it and yeah. has millions and millions of followers yeah. and is constantly and continues to platform people who are self-described fascists uh far right people um he's kind of he's like a he's like a vector point in, yeah. in that he's, in he's, that whole He's very large. He's fairly influential within the social media algorithm of particularly Twitter. Um, he's able, like his, his, he, he's able to get shit trending a lot on Twitter. So he's mm-hmm. not someone you can yeah. entirely ignore. He has a, he has an impact on like national discourse, and he's a lot of people on the right see him as a valuable person. He's had Alex Jones on. He's hanging out with yeah. Kanye and Nick Fuentes now, which is what we're about to talk about. But the thing since. 
uh, since the Colorado Springs shooting, he's gone kind of completely mask off about the groomer thing. And most of his comments have been along the lines of like, well, these people were hosting a groomer event. And so violence was inevitable. Yeah. Basically. And I mean, like, like, when, like that's not exa- I'm going to I'm just going to read one of his tweets to, to give like that. That's that's not an exaggeration or any kind of reading of subtext. Literally, what he said was, quote, it seems around 10 p.m. Club Q posted that they were having an all ages drag show the next day. About two hours later, the shooter came in. People keep calling for wood chippers, and this is what happens. Yeah, like yep. open, like, and this has been this has been a thing across the entire right. Like they're just they're just openly either like very very openly celebrating this, or you get you know like this is one of like one of the things that it's uh, inevitable like, because the gays are so de- yeah. degenerate. And, like like, yeah. like yeah. Jim, Jimmy fucking yeah. door has gone like just completely like <laughs> like. Literally started with the, like started this thing on this with a giant rant about how like how like disgusting it is that like drag queens are around kids. And it's like they they are just openly into full scale, just openly into the like we need to get these people killed. Yeah. Thing. This, this like, is in some ways the most horrifying incident like this because this is the first time that the reaction widely on the right has been either this was a good thing or this yeah. was. This this obviously this was going happens. to happen because yeah. gay people are evil and are grooming children, so violence has to happen against them. And like that is that was that's such a popular sentiment on the right in the aftermath of the shooting, whether it's whether it's implied and whispered or whether it's just said yeah. completely outright. Like it was a very clear consensus that this is what the Republican reaction was going to be and anyone farther right of the Republicans. Like it it, it was it wasn't even just like a Nazi talking point. It was just like regular Republicans in office were talking about this this style of rhetoric in response to the shooting. And yeah. for that reason, it's kind of the most horrifying instant we've had. Um because, you know, like in the aftermath of like the pulse shooting. We yeah, did not exactly. have rhetoric like this yeah. mainstreamed in the way that it is yeah. happening for the Club Q shooting. It was a very, very different response to the to the Pulse shooting. Yeah. Uh, pro- yeah. Also, probably because the shooter there wasn't white. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, they had an yeah, easy no, way to like, talk about it. ISIS connection. Yeah, yeah. They'd be like, no, the problem here was immigration. Right. And no, for this, <laughs> like, he's like, he is obviously a white dude. Um, his lawyers are pulling bullshit to get his hate crime charges pulled, but like, it's obviously, it's, it's obviously this white guy and the, the right's response is, yeah, he was probably justified in doing what he did. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like they're setting him up to be the next Kyle Rittenhouse where like, he's just going to become like this kid celebrity that profits off of killing I don't know if we're there yet. Yeah. Partly because he got the shit kicked out of him. Um, Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. Shireen's no, not by police, by a trans lady and uh, yeah, better dad. I think you've made a good point there that like what they did get away with some shit with Carl Rittenhouse that like yeah. I think they would not have pulled even five years before that. Like I think you wouldn't have found in 2015 people being like, yeah, he shot people in the street and this is good. Fuck mm-hmm. them. And, mm-hmm. and it, it is like the slippery slope fallacy isn't always a fallacy, but like you know, once you start there. I don't think it's a massive leap to being like, yeah, this kid shot queer people in a nightclub and that's what they had coming. Like, even even if they don't make him a hero, yeah. like, I do think that that, like, the Overton window moved with Rittenhouse. Yeah. And it's moving yeah. again with this little fucker. Yeah, I, but, I yeah. think he's slightly too toxic to uh, to uh, to yeah. go through that same celebrity status that Rittenhouse is. Um, he also but, like, can't speak. I think he's been, like, uh, in his court appearances, 
he's like not capable. Yeah, of, I think of he saying got that. beaten he's very badly to shit. Yeah, which I, the is thing what that, you get. The thing that scares me as like a potential Rittenhouse event, but uh, kind of in the in the anti queer mass shooter vibe is like you have some father or something who's separated from the kid and their other parent takes them to a drag queen event and dad shows up and starts shooting. And like, that's a thing that's a lot yeah. easier to get the right to pile on. To. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, that's the instance where that person now becomes a cultural yeah. figure in a yeah. way that's more similar to what has happened with Rittenhouse. Yep. Um, and that just is like the hell scenario. Well, like and, is... and I, I think the other important thing here is like they're deliberately trying to incite this. Like this is this is deliberately absolutely. And, I, and like and this there was an interesting thing. Like Nick Fuentes had this interview. And he, I mean, this is partially just this is just who fucking Nick Fuentes is. But he had this thing after the election where he was like, uh, "Well, I'm like we 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 like we we can't we can't take power via like like we 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 can't actually get our agenda done by voting. We have to do it by like theocratic fascism, right?" And 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 I, you know, OK, so obviously this is Nick Fuentes, but I, I think this is part of what's happening right now, which is that the, the reason that they're doing this, right, the, the, the reason that right now the thing that they're trying to do is inside a genocide is because they're fucking losing every they know it right every single day. Church attendance drops. It's been dropping for fucking 20 years. It's never coming back. Like 9-11 didn't do it. Like Trump didn't do it. Nothing, nothing is ever going to bring people back to these churches. Like unless maybe they solve their sexual assault problem, but that's not good. That, like they structurally can't do that. Right. So, you know, every single day, religiosity drops in this country, every single like every single day, very slowly. And we have been doing this roughly for about 15 years. Now we are winning. And this is what they're fucking terrified of. Right. They have to move right now, like exactly in this moment. Is the is the moment they can exterminate us? If they wait any longer, they're fucked because they're you know the 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 base for this kind of sort of like like this specific kind of of Christian fascism isn't going to be there. Like there will be other fascisms, but you know every 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 single day that they fucking wait, like another person leaves the church, and so you know like right now in, in you know and they, they they can't do it electorally, right? We just saw that they got fucking destroyed trying to lean into the shit. Because and then this is the other thing, right? Like the other thing that's been happening since the 2000s. And this is the thing that is very different about this moment than any other moment that has happened in U.S. history is that the vast, vast majority of people are, are, are pro are pro queer whites are pro LGBTQ are pro gay marriage. Gay marriage polls consistently at about 70 percent. Right. And even with this shit it, that that hasn't moved the needle on it. Right. They know that they, they have to right now. Right. They have to fucking kill us. All they have left is yeah. This is all they have left. They they have they have no direct arguments. action basically. Like, yeah, it's like and yeah, yeah. They they see no other viable way yeah. to to mainstream this, and that's why we have hours after the shooting, libs of TikTok posting about uh, queer events in Colorado because mm -hmm. they're tr they're trying to get this thing to happen. They're trying to do more. They're stuff. trying to press the attack. Yeah, yeah. But, but 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 I think I think I think this is this is like on the other hand, like th this is a sign of their weakness. Right. And, and the, like, again, like the, the, the number, the physical number of people who are pushing this shit is not that large. Right. And, and you know, again, like this is this is, you know, I've, I've, I've talked a lot about how sort of the, the silent majority in this country doesn't fucking agree with this shit. And yeah. like there, there literally are not that fucking many of them. We can stop them. Like, yeah, this, this is an actual thing. Like, it, it, you know, I, like there, 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 there's a limit to which we can even sort of talk about this. But like, OK, we've been doing community self-defense like as as sort of like the big principle of the left since the Trump era, we have reached a point where like, you know, we can defend ourselves. But if we if, if, if we're limited to just defending ourselves, they're going to kill a bunch of us first. 
And that means that we like we actually have to start taking the fight to these media platforms, right? We have to start taking the fight specifically trying to get these people fucking off air and then, you know, failing that, like fucking showing up and like blowing a fucking air horn in Chaya Rychek's like ear every single time she leaves her house. Right. Because all, all of all of these people fucking their entire lives depend on our labor. Right. Every single fucking Uber they take, every single meal they eat is all prepared by us. And, you know, we can fucking find them and we can we can make their lives fucking hell if this is what they're going to do to us. Garrison, do you want to do you want to talk about focus on the family at all? I, and Colorado Springs. Oh, yeah. There was speaking of the kind of direct action Chris was talking about showing up where these people are and making it very clear that they don't get to pretend anymore to not be complicit in, in murder. Um, that that's a story. Yeah, some yeah. some people uh, did did show up at the Colorado Springs focus on the family headquarters. <laughs> um, did a did a graffiti, left some left some uh, messages out front, and posted a communique of sorts. I think they called them um, demonic, which is pretty funny. <laughs> if I'm remembering the message written thing right. Yeah, yeah. that is a weird place. <laughs> it, it it talked about how Satan just. Uh, can uh, uh, disguise himself as an angel mm-hmm. of light. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's talking about the types of like self righteousness yeah. that these Christian fascist groups put on, and in but in effect, they're all kind of murderous snakes. Um, that was that, p- people trying trying to use the Bible against these guys, which is 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 funny in a, in an ironic way. And I don't think they actually care because they don't oh, actually no, they care. Don't. The, but, <laughs> I don't no, think they actually know. care what the Bible says. No, they don't, they don't um, give a shit about what the Bible says. They give a shit about yeah. It, but, but, but that's you know, showing, would, but showing up and 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 yeah. doing doing a little thing outside outside mm-hmm. their headquarters is definitely a good first step. I yes, know when I agree, when yeah. me and James went there, um, you know, like in, in terms of this is just an, an interesting <laughs> an, an, an interesting comment. Like, police did not help at the Club Q shooting at all yeah, no. they, they came yeah, afterwards and they held and yeah. they they you know as as they usually do they'll they'll they arrest the person who 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 helped who helped stop the mass shooting um when me and james went to the focus on the family headquarters last summer um there was a colorado police officer inside the building yeah. the entire time um yeah. constantly there us. mostly watching me because i was the obvious <laughs> obvious uh outcast inside there but that police are stationed at focus on the family all the time 24 7 uh to make sure nothing bad happens there uh but they're not gonna do shit to help queer people getting murdered but they're gonna stay they're gonna have a police car outside of the focus on the family building and have have an officer inside uh all the time because that's what the police actually do yeah i mean it's it's like it is increasingly obvious if you have been paying any attention in the last decade, the only consequences that exist in this world is us. And, you know, it, 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 it is in our hands to decide what the consequences for these people fucking attempting to incite a genocide are. All right. Yeah, that's going to yeah. do it for us here. It, it could happen here until next time. Uh, I don't know. Until next time. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and occasionally about how to put them back together again. And today we have a special episode. We're going to be talking about a place where things did, in fact, fall apart and uh, people are, you could say, still in the process of putting them back together again and trying to do it in a way that is much more equitable and and better than things had been before the collapse. Uh, That is Rojava in northeast Syria. I'm going to introduce kind of that concept in uh, uh, I'll, I'll do it right now. Basically, if you if you don't know anything about this, you might check out our podcast, The Women's War. Um, but it is a it is an autonomous region, not a state in northeast Syria that is not under the control of the Assad regime um, or of any other state in the area. It's an independent um, community that is based on some pretty radical. It's you know, its organization is based on some pretty radical political philosophies, um, uh, in large part, ones that were sort of initially explored by a man named Murray Bookchin, who was a, an American social theorist and anarchist, anarchist political philosopher. Um, and some of his ideas were adopted by the leader of a militant group in the region called the PKK. Um, and the leader of that group was a guy in a Turkish prison named Abdullah Ajalan, who was, you might say, a Kurdish freedom fighter. Um, Ajalan encountered Bookchin's ideas and started writing his own books of political theory that were kind of based off of them. And then when uh, 2013, you get the Syrian civil war reaches its kind of height, ISIS becomes a thing. Suddenly the government's not in this area that has a large Kurdish population, Northeast Syria. And, um, you know, people who are followers of Ajalon take over and start as they're fighting ISIS, instituting this kind of radical feminist egalitarian vision of society. Uh, which is currently under attack by the Turkish government, which is what we're going to be talking about. So I want to introduce our guests for today. First off, we have uh, we have James Stout and we have uh, Chris on the call from our normal Cool Zone team. And then our guests today uh, are Debbie Bookchin. Uh, Debbie is a journalist and author and co-editor of The Next Revolution, Popular Assemblies, and the Promise of Direct Democracy. Um, and then we also have Megan Baudet, from the Kurdish Peace Institute, uh, where she is the director of research. Um, welcome to the show, Megan and Debbie. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. 
Yeah, thank you both for your time. I think maybe to start us out, Megan, um, would you be willing to talk a little bit about why the Turkish government is so aggressive towards this independent region in northeast Syria and kind of what the situation on the ground is now? Yeah, absolutely. So for some background, essentially since the division of the Middle East into the modern nation states that exist there today, after uh, World War I with um, the agreements by European powers, uh, the Kurdish people have been divided between four different states, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. And all of those states have had governments that have been um, ethno-nationalist, that have been repressive, that have not provided Kurds and other ethnic and religious minorities equal citizenship rights um, to participate in politics and to practice their culture, to speak their language, um, in addition to denying many of these rights to many of their other citizens uh, of different ethnicities and religions as well. And so as a result of this repression, and the repression in Turkey was some of the strongest and most systemic, um, the Kurdish people in these regions have continued to struggle for and demand uh, self-determination and freedom in different political forms. What happened in Turkey in the 1920s and the 1930s, there were Kurdish revolts against the new um, Turkish Republic which was a um, very uh, autocratic nation state that denied the existence of all non-Turkish ethnicities. And these revolts were all violently put down with attacks that not only targeted those who uh, tried to resist these policies of assimilation, but that also resulted in um, Turkish you know, mass violence against Kurdish civilians in these regions. You had forced deportations, you had uh, ethnic cleansing, you had all kinds of brutal violence against civilians in order to specifically create this homogenous Turkish ethnic identity in Kurdish regions. And so after this period of time, there were... Um, there was a period wherein there uh, was less resistance. And I think, you know, the Turkish government believed that the Kurdish problem had been solved by force. They had successfully been able to kill or assimilate um, all of the Kurdish people. But in the 1970s and the 1980s, sort of concurrent with many national liberation movements around the world, you had the beginning of the PKK or the Kurdistan Workers Party's national liberation struggle now, they began as a socialist movement seeking an independent and socialist Kurdish state, and they saw Kurdistan as a colony that was occupied uh, by Turkey, and with the colonialism uh, of Turkey in Kurdistan was supported by um, imperialist powers in the rest of the world as well. And they sought to write that as other national liberation movements in um, Africa, Asia, Latin America, many places at the time did, with an armed struggle for independence. And in responding to the PKK's formation and armed struggle, the Turkish state once again, rather than acceding to any Kurdish demands, they responded with brutal, violent oppression of not only Kurds who were active in the armed struggle, not only politically active Kurds, but on all forms of Kurdish identity. Uh, after the military coup in Turkey in 1980, the Kurdish language was banned. Um, Kurds were imprisoned on false charges or no charges at all. Um, torture was prevalent. Show trials were prevalent. Um, any kind of publication or other public uh, interaction in Kurdish was completely illegal. 
So there was this full-scale effort to repress the Kurds and any other progressive segments of society in Turkey that would have supported them. And as the conflict went on, Turkey did very little to change. By the 1990s, the um, success of the Kurdish movement had forced the state to recalibrate, as had developments in Iraqi Kurdistan with Kurds there achieving autonomy. And so you started to have uh, the ability of Kurdish political actors to work within the system. We saw the development of pro-Kurdish legal political parties at that time. But there was still very severe um, repression of any and all things Kurdish as they made their demands, even of those who increasingly attempted to make demands peacefully. So the conflict went on um, throughout the 1990s and the 2000s. And to this day, um, despite a peace process between uh, the government of Turkey and the PKK and the Kurdish movement between 2012 and 2015, Um, That process failed when Erdogan's government saw that it was allowing for Kurds to take advantage of expanded democratic space in Turkey, organize and achieve electoral political success. The government abandoned its commitments and sadly returned to war. And uh, the conflict has been going on ever since and has included, you know, again, not only this military component, but this component of crushing all forms of organized Kurdish political and cultural expression. So what we've been seeing in Turkey over the past um, nearly a decade now, more than a half decade, is the repression of the pro-Kurdish political opposition in parliament, the People's Democratic Party or the HDP. Um, We've seen repression of Kurdish media, attacks on Kurdish journalists. Um, We've seen any kind of Kurdish activism, not only um, that that's explicitly political, but any kind of acknowledgement of the Kurdish language, of Kurdish colors, of Kurdish clothing, very readily criminalized. And this campaign of attacking and repressing all things Kurdish has, of course, expanded beyond Turkey's borders. So Turkey opposes North and East Syria because the Syrian Kurds have created a form of autonomous governance that protects and promotes Kurdish rights because they have done so in the framework of the Kurdish freedom movement that has its roots in Turkey um, and in Ocalan's ideas, as you explained, and because they've been able to create a successful alternative to the very uh, sort of nationalist project that the modern Turkish state is based on. You know, I would say that the Turkish-Kurdish conflict, and I don't like to call it that, uh, but that is what most people call it today, is really a conflict now over two competing visions of regional order, uh, with Turkey's based on uh, the right-wing neoliberal nation-state and uh, the Kurdish movement's vision of a Middle East based on self-determination, liberation, equality for women, and other values, uh, not only for Kurds, but for all people. So because North and East Syria represents um, both... Kurdish success and in creating an autonomous region, and it represents these ideas of the Kurdish freedom movement that challenge Turkey's nationalist project. Um, Turkey has been trying to destroy the autonomous administration of North and East Syria by all possible means for a very long time now. They've invaded Syrian territory twice to attack the autonomous administration and the SDF, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Once in Afrin in 2018, Afrin is in northwestern Syria, and then once in 2019, after um, you know Trump and Erdogan's phone call uh, that we all infamously remember 
in Serikania and Talabiad in northeastern Syria. So you've had these two invasions and occupations of um, north and east Syria's territory that have included not only the terrible violence of invasion and occupation, but also all kinds of crimes against civilians who remained. We've seen uptakes in violence and abuse of women, um, ethnically motivated, religiously motivated hatred and persecution that's driven virtually all of the non-Arab and non-Muslim people living in these regions to flee their homes, um, attacks on anyone who is perceived as having collaborated with the prior administration, all being carried out by Turkey and uh, Turkish-backed Syrian militia groups. So we've seen the persecution of the civilians in these areas with the intent of changing demographics and installing not only a government sympathetic to Turkey and the military structure sympathetic to Turkey, but also removing the social base for the autonomous administration's project. And then in addition to these um, all-out attacks on the autonomous administration in these regions, Turkey continues to threaten the territory that North and East Syria does have left, which is still nearly one-third of Syrian territory concentrated in the Northeast. There's been an escalating campaign of drone strikes targeting leaders in the autonomous administration and the SDF, as well as Syrian civilians. Turkey is cutting water access to north and east Syria um, by restricting the flow of the Euphrates River. This is an agricultural region. People depend on that water uh, for all aspects of life um, and certainly for the economy. That's caused a great deal of suffering. The entire uh, Turkish-Syrian border is very heavily militarized. Uh, when you drive by it and you see the wall and, you know, very lit up at night with the barbed wire and everything, and you just look at, you know, these civilian towns, very peaceful on both sides, it's something very disturbing to see. Um, but it's a highly militarized border and it is a completely sealed border. Um, Turkey does not trade with North and East Syria and supports an international economic blockade on the region including by pressuring its allies to um, restrict the access of goods to North and East Syria. So there's economic fire going on there. There are really every tactic that Turkey is able to use, whether military, economic, environmental, political, or anything else, in order to crush and destroy uh, North and East Syria's political project and force the Kurdish people and the other peoples of that region to flee so that there is no base for such a project again in the future, uh, they're doing everything they can to achieve that outcome. So the situation is very difficult and it is a direct result of Turkey's, you know, century old Kurdish question that it has been unable and unwilling to honestly and in good faith seek a peaceful solution to. Um, and we'll get to it later, but the international community has played a very big role in ensuring that that conflict goes on uh, with all of those negative consequences for Northeast Syria. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the, so obviously Turkey is the second largest military in NATO um, and has, you know, one of the things that is such like so messy about this is that on paper and on the ground, in fact, the United States has been supporting the autonomous region um, in in northeast Syria, and particularly the the YPG and the YPJ, which is you know the the the, the militia essentially, um, as as partners in the fight against ISIS. And still to this day, right now, there's an operation going on in the Al Hol camp, which is where a lot of ISIS prisoners are held. Um, that is like a coalition supported operation. And at the same time that the United States is doing this. 
we're selling weapons to the people who are have essentially declared the folks that our military has been aiding um, a terrorist organization, um, which is a, a peculiar and frustrating situation to say the least. Yeah, and and actually, the other thing that's happening, Robert, is that you know Turkey, while it's threatening a full scale invasion. They've been doing all of these things that Megan described sort of on this sort of low intensity warfare scale, a kind of military strategy that uses a whole variety of tactics um, that are short of, you know, a, a full scale invasion, which still may come. And so, you know, there's these extrajudicial killings of mm-hmm. uh, some of the leaders of the SDF, which is the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is the sort of umbrella group of the two militia, Kurdish militias that you described, and which also includes many Arab fighters and others who have, yes. who have been central in defeating ISIS, at the cost, I might add, of about 13,000 lives, yeah. you know. And, um, you know, and the, and the use of their proxy groups like the Syrian so-called, you know, SNA, Syrian National Army, which is really, a, you know, a group of, of jihadi militias that Turkey has kind of assembled and now completely is responsive to Turkey and, and is, are the sort of shock troops for when they went, did go into Afrin and at, for these other invasions. Um, you know, economic pressure, as as Megan described. But the point is that this kind of warfare, it produces these sort of ongoing low-level attacks, but it keeps it sort of off the radar of the of the bigger political and 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 media machine, and therefore it keeps it from getting the attention that it really deserves in Western societies. It also has the impact of displacing hundreds of thousands of people. And and uh, you know and and many hundreds have also been killed. I'm sure uh, probably you're familiar with some of the recent bombings by drone that have been occurring in in Rojava, which you know, including many civilians, school children. Yeah. Turkey Turkey is doesn't care at all about about who gets hit, and they have been very aggressive, um, without any respect for civilian casualties as well. So you know. So, I mean, I think it's it's important to also just note that this democratic project is in Syria is a deep threat to Turkey because and and that every time Erdogan steps up these military sort of this aggression, um, it, it leads him to rise slightly in the polls, which is something that's important to him because he has an election coming up next year. So there's that sort of political dimension to it. But the fact is that that. Rojava is basically a women's revolution. Women are involved in every aspect of running society there, the political, the social, the economic. And Turkey is essentially a femicidal state. Yeah. You know, it, it not only reviews women within, within Turkey as less than human, where husbands can basically get away with murdering their wives, but, you know, it, it targets girls with drones, as it did on August 18th, when a Turkish drone bombed a UN-supported education center for young girls in, in Haseka, in Rojava. So, you know, it's, it's uh, very much, as Megan said, a, a war of ideologies as well. Again, one of the things that's so frustrating with this, so historically, the reason why Turkey was, it was so important for NATO to get Turkey as a member is because that's essentially NATO's eastern flank. If you're still thinking about 
that big theoretical conflict between you know Russia and uh, and the Western democracies. That was why you know part of why why initially like Turkey was such a valued partner, and then as time has gone on, it's um it primarily um, one of the big things is we have a massive air base in Turkey in Serlik, um, mm -hmm. where a number of U.S. nuclear warheads are kept. Um, so there's a tremendous fear, cowardice might be a better way to say it, on behalf of um, politicians in the United States and other Western countries to actually engage with the ethnic cleansings um, and with the human rights abuses that the Turkish government, particularly under Erdogan, has uh, has continued. And one of the things that's really frustrating about this, you know, if you think about the way in which ISIS was discussed by U.S. media, was discussed by you know conservatives, by Donald Trump during his campaign. You know, it was this ultimate boogeyman. Well, a huge chunk of the support for for ISIS and in fact, even logistics for some of their fighters uh, came allegedly courtesy of the Turkish state. And there's some evidence for this. There's certainly evidence of uh, support for wounded fighters and kind of a, a lax policy that allowed a lot of people to come through Turkey and get into northeast Syria to fight. Um, and, you know, as you noted earlier, 13,000 somewhere around there, fighters, men and women um, in the YPG and J, uh, died fighting ISIS. In, you know, um, and we're you know, not just fighting ISIS kind of with the backing of the United States, but prior to getting any support, one of the most important things they did, the, while ISIS was on the move in Iraq as well as Syria, they were carrying out an active ethnic cleansing, a genocidal operation in Mount Sinjar against the Yazidis. Um, and that was only really stopped because while they were fighting a defensive war in northeast Syria, the YPG sent fighters into Iraq to stop the genocide. Um, and they were successful in this. You know, you talk to, as I have a lot of Yazidi survivors of the genocide, and they'll say the only reason we got out is because of, you know, the YPG. Um, and the PKK, by the and way. The, and the PKK. Yeah. Well, and that is the, it is, it is, so we, we should, we could talk a little bit about the PKK. They are the the YPG and J and the SDF, which is kind of the umbrella organization, are not recognized as terrorist organizations by the United States or by most Western democracies. The PKK is recognized as a terrorist organization. Turkey's allegations would be that the YPG and J and and other you know uh, militias are just PKK affiliates. Um, the reality is that they are in quite in fact quite closely tied. <laughs> um, uh, and and you will you know. But also, there, it's not the exact, like when you're in Rojava and you encounter people who are PKK, people will speak about them differently than they will talk about other people who are kind of, you know, they're the folks from the mountains is the term that I hear used the most. But the thing is, see, here's the problem. The problem is that, that whatever the PKK's history is and has been, and it's way sure. more than we can get into, the PKK made a dramatic shift in its ideology yes. and has done everything possible to try to restart peace negotiations with Turkey. So first of all, you know, there are several, as Megan mentioned before, there was a, a peace initiative that went on for a few years that then Erdogan decided wasn't, um, you know, beneficial to him. So he, he stopped it. But the PKK, and, and as recently as I think a year or two ago, the leader of the, of the PKK in the mountains right now, Jamil mm -hmm. Bayek, wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post saying, we want to have 
talks. We want to have reconciliation with Turkey. We're not asking for a separate yeah. Kurdish state. All we want is some degree of autonomy. And and uh, you know and and it's actually to the enduring shame of the Western media, including the New York Times, that they continue to talk about them as a separatist organization. But that's another story as well. The the fact is that these um, ideologies that they both subscribe to, PKK and the YPG, YPJ, regardless of whether, to what extent they may be related, the political ideology is an ideology about direct democracy. It's about empowering people at the local level. It's about making sure that every adult and also the youth have a say in their communities. And it's as grassroots democratic as anything that you could ever imagine. And so really, you would think that the United States you know, would understand that there's certainly no threat that the neither the the YPG nor the YPJ has ever um, shown any aggression towards Turkey, which is what makes this idea of a buff the idea that they need a buffer zone kind of a joke. You know, so really, it's it's a ideological shift that's so profound and so empowering to local people that it's also something that, frankly, those of us who are on the left should be much more supportive of. I think than than people have been so far. Yeah, I mean, the thing that is most remarkable, because I spent a lot, I've spent more time certainly in Iraq than in Syria. And we should note here that we're talking about Syria today and we're talking about Rojava. Uh, Turkish aggression against particularly, um, against the PKK, but against you know Kurds kind of in an ethnic sense, um, extends beyond Syria. Turkey has illegally attacked Iraq and in fact moved troops into Iraqi soil uh, a number of times escalating within the last year and killed a substantial number of people in the in the Kurdish regional government territories. Um, so that is also occurring here. Um, although it, it's it's worth noting, again, because people mix this up a lot, what's happening in Kurdish-controlled Iraq is profoundly different from what's happening in Rojava, and they're extremely different political organizations. And I think it's also worth mentioning that it's not just um, Kurdish groups that have been attacking in uh, Iraq, there have been a bunch of attacks like on, on Yazidi survivors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they've killed a bunch of those people too. It is yeah. the uh, yeah, they're yeah. Just, they're doing the genocide again. Yeah, the I think yeah, and it's um, it's interesting. You know, I uh, I, it's also kind of worth the thing that's was perhaps most surprising to me there was the degree to which people I would meet who were just like, in, in many cases, just like kind of, you know, terrorism police, Asayish guys, or people who were like working traffic checkpoints or working in the farms. The, there were, people were really careful to not refer or talk to like what the project was as a state. And it's, it's not on a state, a state, it's an autonomous region. That's one of the terms I heard the most is the autonomous regions, which is, is really interesting to me. And it's, it's hard, it's something certainly like mainstream media writing about it, um, seems to have trouble grasping, as you say. And it's it's interesting because obviously, it, Debbie, in case folks haven't put it together, you are the daughter of, of Murray Bookchin, who is the um, who is the the political philosopher whose ideas formed a significant like core of of sort of what the organizational structure in Rojava is. Um, well, well, I just want to say, first of all, thank you for that. But yeah. I also just want to say that I, I really want to remind everybody that, of course, you know, Abdullah Chalan <clears throat> read 
hundreds and hundreds of yes. books, not just my dad's. No. So, I mean, I appreciate that. But, you know, they have he has really especially placed emphasis on the need for any revolutionary project to have the liberation of women at its core. Yes. My dad talked a lot about hierarchy and patriarchy, but Uchalan by making women central has really done something unique, I think, you know, in, in the history of, because in the history of sort of revolutionary, you know, movements, because as many women who have participated in those movements in the past can tell you, it was always sure fight with us and we'll deal with the women's issue when the revolution is over. And Jalan turned that upside down, you know, and he said, it's got to be a women's revolution yeah. or it's not a mm-hmm. revolution at all. And the women in those movements over there really fought for that themselves, yeah. too. Um, and one of the things that, you know, was most interesting for me to see um, was when I would go into meetings there with women in all kinds of different, uh, you know, military and civilian institutions in different cities across the region that before I would even bring it up as a researcher, you know, women would say to me that if it weren't for Ochelon's theories, we wouldn't have the organizations that we have. We wouldn't have the political power that we have. And they had this incredible articulation of how they use these ideas, you know, as inspiration for their own work and also as almost political cover to do kinds of things that wouldn't be accepted in other places because they can go to men who they work with who might be suspicious, but who, uh, you know, have this public stated claim to this ideology. And they can say, well, Ochalan's books say that society can never be free without women's liberation, that women can Mm -hmm. have their own separate institutions. So they've been able to really take these ideas and expand on them and, you know, push them and use them with their own practice. And the way that the ideas came about themselves, uh, one book that I would recommend anyone interested in the Kurdish movement, um, in revolutionary women's movements anywhere in the world, in really any topic related to any of this to read, is um, the autobiography of Sakina Johnses, who was the only woman present for the founding of the PKK and was really instrumental in organizing both the armed and civilian sides of the Kurdish women's movement in Turkey. Um, There are pictures of her everywhere in Syria. She was assassinated in France in 2013 uh, by Turkish nationalists uh, affiliated with the state, likely uh, suspected, you know, hoping to disrupt the peace negotiations that were ongoing at that time. But she's remembered everywhere in Northeast Syria for her role And you can see in her book, her talking about seeing the inequalities that, as Debbie mentioned, women in socialist movements and revolutionary movements often faced where they were asked to, you know, be as committed to the struggle as their male comrades were, but were still treated um, in very patriarchal ways by men that they worked with because of, you know, the patriarchy embedded into these societies. And you see her talking about organizing women to overcome this. Um, And when you look at the history of the Kurdish movement, moving into what you see in Northeast Syria as well, you know, women were really able to do so much in practice that the theory had to move to catch up to them. And then to take this new incredible theory of, you know, women's oppression being the basis of all oppression um, and the form of oppression that, you know, must be addressed to free all members of society in all ways, you know, they took this and, they continued to expand it. So in a very difficult place and context to do so, I mean, we know that in war, um, 
there's more violence against women, there's more discrimination, there's more emphasis on traditional gender roles, that this holds true across different societies and different conflicts. So they have, um, they face many challenges. They're up against a lot here, certainly, you know, with all the problems um, that they're facing in Northeast Syria because of conflict and poverty, um, and everything that Turkey's doing that we've discussed. Uh, so they're up against a lot and it's not easy. But they've really, you know, they've come incredibly far um, and seeing how, you know, they've taken very high level theoretical ideas and then done so much in practice and how their practice and theory inform each other um, is really one of the most incredible things to see over there. Um, and it's another reason why Turkey wants to destroy them, because Erdogan does not believe that women can be equal to men. Um, he does not see male violence against women as a problem. And yeah, you know, as uh, we've discussed, uh, Turkey and the Kurdish movement couldn't be any more different on this question. No, and it's, um, I think the thing, because, you know, going over there, I, I went with the eye as a journalist where like I had heard all these things and, and Rojava has kind of become among some chunks of the left, chunks of the left, a cause celeb um, in part because of, you know, the achievements uh, of the revolution in that space. And I wanted to see how legitimate is it? And um, part of why, you know, I kind of went in with that attitude is that I had spent so much time in the Kurdish regions of Iraq. And if, if you remember when the fighting against ISIS was at its height, there was a tremendous amount of coverage of the, the female Peshmerga and the fact that, you know, the Kurds in northern Iraq, who were the force in Iraq that collapsed the least when ISIS was on the advance. Um, it's overstated how well they did. That's why the YPG needed to rescue the Yazidis at Sinjar is the the, the Kurdish military in northern Iraq just kind of bounced at that point. But, um, you know, I had heard about, you know, these that, that the this women's rights situation is great in northern Iraq. It's very egalitarian. There's women fighters. And it is, it's certainly, and anyone who lives there will tell you, much safer and easier to be a woman in, in the KRG, the Kurdish region, like control, Kurdish regional government parts of Iraq than it is further south in the country. But that doesn't mean it's it's good. It is it is more like certain things are somewhat more tolerated. There's more freedom, but it's still a very traditionalist society. And for example, I didn't see any female Peshmerga. Um, they did not make much of a presence on the ground, and and their 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 involvement in the fighting was exaggerated somewhat as part of a conscious PR strategy. Um, as soon as you cross into northeast Syria. You see women manning and running checkpoint stations. You see as you go in, because they're like, you know, they, they like you get like passport and stuff like looked at and you get like stamps and, and whatnot when you kind of come into the to the region. Um, you see a lot of women like running that part of the operation. You go in to the actual country itself. And there's we, we visited uh, a, a restaurant that was run by a collective of women who had all lost husbands in the fight. And we ran we went to a farm that was all young women who had left their families who were very traditionalist in their religious attitude um, and, and gone independent. And of course you see um, female military units and female, we saw mixed male and female like military policing units and stuff. And it's, it's one of those things that if you are going there kind of uh, with a critical eye to try and see how extensive the revolution can be, I can't imagine not being convinced of the reality of it because it's, it's just so stark. Well, also Robert, you know, first of all, just to, Again, you could say a lot about what's going on in in Iraqi Kurdistan, but yeah. just to very quickly sum it up, I mean, it is a capitalist petrol state Extremely run by a clan. So. 
yeah. the Barzanis, you know, who who accrue basically all the wealth to themselves. Yeah. And you can't even begin to compare it with, with the no. kind of revolutionary project in Syria. So, I mean, I just want to, in case, so people oh, yeah. understand, I mean... I don't want to use, I hate to use the word socialist because it's such a, it's so fraught, but you could, the closest thing, you know, it's a, it's built on a socialist economic model, except a better one, more like what my father and what Abdullah Jalan have in mind, which my father called communalism. And this democratic confederalist model is based on cooperatives, you know, where people really do um, have the means, control the means of production as much as possible. I mean, it's obviously all, you know, still in formation. It's still growing. And, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and there's areas like together. the energy sector where things, <clears throat> have, you know, are less like that, but are, I, I hope, you know, given yeah. time, move in that direction. Yeah. I mean, obviously, no, this is certainly not some kind of perfect utopian. Of course it's still not. in the middle of a yeah. war zone. But but as you pointed out, what you see when you go there is women so active in every aspect. I would add to to what the great examples you gave, the women's houses. Oh, the gosh, yes. Yeah. I wanted right? to talk about that. Right, yeah. where they, they are literally resolving so many problems for both men and women, you know, at the yeah. community level. And and so it's it's really quite an extraordinary, you know, I, I guess what I want to say about it is that like, if if we all got on board of you know one of that that Cretan Elon Musk spaceships went to Mars <laughs> and found a colony you know where they were doing this we'd be cherishing it we'd be going oh my god you know look at these people they're like they have a cooperative economy and they have women's councils at every level wow men can't overrule women on a decision that comes to say women's bodies think here the dobbs <laughs> decision right on the supreme court yeah. women only women can can decide those issues that are related to to women and there there are councils at every level and people sending delegates you know meeting in their little villages and towns and communities and electing delegates to the next level. It is a true grassroots democracy and it's ecological and it's feminist. It's like if Ursula Le Guin were writing about it and the dispossessed, yes. we'd all be going, wow. Oh. So, so really, you know, it's something that I think, especially anybody who considers themselves a feminist, you know, should be supporting and, and certainly, and I hope all of us do, you know, and and certainly anybody you know, I would think who's an anarchist. To me, it's pretty close to any every anarchist's dream, mm-hmm. you know. And and so I, I think, yeah, I just wanted to make that contrast with Iraq because I think yeah. it's really important yeah. and it really goes to why mm-hmm. the Kurdish project really needs very badly the support of people in the United States because in so many ways. The United States kind of calls the shots about what can and cannot happen over there. If you look at the problems they have, you know, to all of that, because of course, all of these places are not perfect and have, you know, these serious issues alongside these serious achievements. Every issue that they have is an issue that any society would have if that society uh, had been through 10 years of war. Um, were impoverished and blockaded from virtually all economic activity with the outside world, if they had had to not only uh, you know, fight the occupation of a group like ISIS, but then immediately turn around to fight a state army much larger than them, you know, bent on 
taking and occupying their territory, a society where people fear going outside because they don't know if they'll be in the wrong place at the wrong time when there'll be a drone strike on a local military leader going around doing their job, keeping their community safe from ISIS or a local political leader going around doing their job, trying to you know build this new system. So I think when we look at the flaws, uh, they're flaws that are the result of, in large part, poverty and conflict and all of the compounding crises that uh, the people of North and East Syria have to face because of what they've gone through. You know, as Debbie mentioned, much at the hands of larger powers. So much of what happens in Syria is up to what the United States wants, up to what Russia wants, up to what Turkey wants. Um, All of these countries and regions, you know, with different priorities, different outlooks, but it somehow happens that at the end of the day, uh, you know, the one thing they can all agree on is that um, it's okay to sell out the autonomous administration. It's okay to have consequences for them. You know, if the Kurdish people suffer, the Yazidi people suffer, the people of North and East Syria, all of these different demographics, if they're the people who are victimized, you know, because they don't have a state, because they're fighting for something different, because they're challenging the status quo, it's okay if they're the ones who face the consequences. We saw this, you know, with what happened with ISIS. We saw this with the complete international silence when Afrin was invaded, with the, you know, piecemeal response that stopped the Turkish invasion in 2019 but allowed them to convert what they were doing to this kind of low intensity war, um, you know, with a terrible ceasefire, you know, with undefined lines and with these drone strikes being allowed in areas where Russia and the United States, both of which have agreements with Turkey are active, um, you know, and both of whom tolerate this. So essentially every powerful interest in Syria can agree on, you know, ensuring that the autonomous administration comes in last. And as people in the U.S., you know, anyone who considers themselves on the left, who considers themselves a feminist, who cares about persecuted ethnic and religious minorities, who opposes endless war and militarist foreign policy that props up autocrats and, you know, props up far-right regimes, anyone with any of those values should be very concerned about the situation in Northeast Syria right now and should be looking at what we can do to, uh, to get our government to stop supporting some of these very harmful policies against the region, you know, even while it claims to be supporting their fight against ISIS. What can people listening here, uh, presumably most of you are in the United States or Canada or, or Western Europe, what can people listening here, particularly in the U.S., do to have an impact, to help? Well, uh, we could talk about that. Um, we could have an entire other podcast episode on that because there's a lot to be done. But, you know, to summarize in a few words, the way that the United States supports Turkey's war on the Kurdish people, uh, all the peoples of the region and the Kurdish National Liberation Movement is through um, military cooperation and support, through diplomatic cooperation and support, uh, intelligence sharing and these pro-war legal pretexts. So, Go tell Congress that you don't want them to send weapons to Turkey. There's an F-16 sale right now that um, it was really great to see uh, the majority of Congress, including all of the squad members, people like AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, all opposed that sale. So opposing arms sales, very important, something that there's momentum there for um, and that there's momentum among progressives, therefore, which is very heartening. 
opposing military aid and security assistance to Turkey. You know, I've done research on this. U.S. security assistance has trained senior Turkish officials, including the country's current defense minister and several perpetrators of the violent, repressive 1980 military coup. Obviously, we should not be training coup plotters and war criminals. That is not something I think most people listening to this want their tax dollars to go to. So calling for an end to U.S. security assistance to Turkey, very important in addition to ending those arms sales. And challenging the pro-war legal pretexts and designations that um, allow Turkey to get this kind of Western support. You know, a wonderful thing that we saw um, a couple weeks back was the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the U.S., saying that they oppose the terror designation of the PKK and believe that it should be delisted. That's something that progressives support uh, very strongly in Europe. We've seen, you know, calls from places like Ireland and South Africa, where people know a lot about, you know, what terror designations and, you know, the criminalization (laughs) of struggles, you know, can can have impacts on conflict resolution. You know, people who've participated in these kinds of post-conflict processes in some of these places saying, get rid of the designation, it's harmful for peace. You know, it will be difficult to end this less violently without it. So that's something where, you know, it seems the international case for it is something that's rather obvious and where pressure in the U.S. on the U.S. designation to remove it would be an important step for facilitating dialogue and a negotiated end to this conflict. So understanding how the U.S. supports Turkey's wars on the Kurdish people and opposing all of those different uh, policies and programs is one of the most important things that we can do to say this war is not in our name. We stand with the people of Northeast Syria, with the people in Turkey suffering from Turkish authoritarianism, with the people in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, Yazidis in Shengal being bombed by Turkish drones. When we say that we don't want to support this war, we stand with all of those people. Um, And I think that that kind of action against arms sales, security assistance, and pro-war legal pretexts could be a really great base for solidarity, opposing endless war in the Middle East, and standing up for, you know, peacefully ending this conflict. Um, And it would align us with progressives all around the world and, you know, people who really believe in in peace and in ending these kinds of things. And and if I could just add, you yes. know, one one element to that would also be really pressing for a diplomatic solution to the whole so-called Kurdish question. Because mm-hmm. Rojava will remain in danger as long as Erdogan and and his and his party think that they can basically, that they have to be fighting Kurds because, you know, to them, as Megan said before, Rojava is an extension of their own Kurds and of the PKK. So what, but but what really needs to happen, just as, as it happened in South Africa, is there has to be a negotiated settlement. One of the things that would help with this, and there are movements that people can get involved with if they want, would be freeing Uchalan, who has been in a, sitting in a Turkish jail for the last 22 years, because he is sort of the Nelson Mandela, really, of, of the Kurdish freedom movement, and he should be involved in these negotiations, and was, even while he was in jail, but really you know, a a jailed person can't really do that properly. So pressing for a diplomatic solution, because basically 
Erdogan uses the PKK um, and the listing of the PKK as a terrorist organization to basically kill all Kurds everywhere. And in order to stop that, somehow there has to be a break in this. And so I think that, you know, people, there are certainly plenty of peace organizations and people who want to work on peace. And I think this is a really important demand that they begin that, that the United States and the United States has nothing to lose by pressuring Turkey to engage in negotiations with the PKK. This isn't our war. The PKK has never done anything to the United States. It would make, as Megan said, for a lasting peace in the entire Middle East. And would, you know, and, and so what I would say is, first of all, folks, it would be great if people who want more information about any of this could contact the organization that I helped co-found, the Emergency Committee for Rojava, which is at defendrojava.org. And we have scripts to call congresspersons, resources, and we even have fun monthly meetings that people can come to. Um, you know, and there's, of course, a lot of information at Megan's website, also kurdishpeace.org. But you know, one of the things that people could do is go out and talk to their communities, whether it's a religious community or a labor union or a food co-op or your kid's nursery school or reading group, women's group, and sort of talk and, and, and help. Because there's a lot of people who surprisingly really don't know much about Rojava. I think maybe because they're, because the Zabatistas are a little closer geographically, that, that, project is a bit better known, you know. So talking to people and getting people engaged. And for example, if there's anybody listening from New Jersey, Bob Menendez is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he's been pretty hostile towards Erdogan and, and keeping on him with phone calls, emails is a great way, you know, for, for our um, uh, as somebody who worked in Washington for a while when I worked for Bernie Sanders, I know that these guys listen to their constituents, you know, and if they get enough calls, they start to pay attention to those things that, that come around. We could even get, you know, somebody to send a letter around to their colleagues in Congress saying, you know, it's time to, to start peace negotiations. Those kinds of things do have impact because, as I said before, unfortunately, the United States is really at the helm and in so many ways of what happens internationally in these geopolitical battles. Um, well, thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you so much, Megan. Um, I think that's that's going to do it for us today. Um, please, you know, continue paying attention to this. Um, did, did you want to, you know, Megan, did you have anything else you wanted to kind of kind of add um, or, or let people know? Actually, if both of you would let people know where they can follow you on the Internet. Yeah, well, I mean, I um think that that about covers it. Look, the only solution for peace, democracy, and self-determination in Turkey and in the wider Middle East is a just and democratic negotiated settlement to the Kurdish question. And I think that just, as Debbie said, learn about what's going on, reach out to your communities, talk to your local Kurdish community if there is one, find the opportunities that there are to engage with people in Turkey, in Syria, in all of these places, you know, working for peace and standing up for these ideas. And then no efforts too small because 
ending this conflict would benefit everyone in Northeast Syria, everyone in Turkey, and all of us here, you know, knowing that our government was no longer supporting this terrible, unjust war. Um, so just get out there and do something um, to see the work that uh, the think tank where I work um, is doing on this issue. You can go to KurdishPeace.org where we have research and analysis on everything related to do uh, related to the Kurdish issue um, from all different perspectives. And you can check out our work there. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter, um, Megan Bodette. And the Twitter handle is at five underscores MJB. Excellent. My, my Twitter is simpler. It's just Debbie Bookchin at Debbie Bookchin. And um, again, I just want to say that, uh, you know, people we do at defendrojava.org, and we are also on Twitter at defendrojava, we have so many ideas and so much information about how people can get involved. As Megan said, if nothing else, no more weapons to Turkey until they begin peace negotiations. Uh, give Rojava political recognition. That would be another thing people can be d- demanding. Also, that Kurds have a place at the bargaining table in any discussions about the future of Syria. So we have all those kinds of ideas, scripts, as I said, model emails, and more at defendrojava.org. Awesome. Um, thank nice. you all for, uh, for being on. And um, yeah, that's going to do it for us here. It, it could happen here for the day. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, everyone. It's James here. Uh, welcome to It Could Happen here. Today, it's just me, and we're talking again about the UC strike. Uh, but the audio is not great. We had some technical issues on my end, not, not on Matt's end, but... We wanted to put it out nonetheless because we felt there was a very important episode and things are developing very rapidly at the UC and we thought that our listeners would like it. So apologies for the poor quality of the audio. We hope you can get through it anyway. 
All right. So I'm talking today with Matthew Ehrlich, who's a seven, seventh year PhD candidate in the history department. Uh, Matthew, would you like to explain a little bit of uh, who you are and what you've been doing with reference to the strike in the last three weeks and maybe before as well? Yes, uh, so I uh, studied Spanish history, uh, the 19th century empire. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been at UCSD for seven years. Um, I actually uh, was doing research in Spain um, for two years during the COVID pandemic. So there was a sort of break in my um, university participation between uh, uh, my, my qualifying exams uh, the first two or three years I was there. Um, and then I left and I came back and I found the campus was, was quite different, um, both from COVID and from the increasing economic hardships. Um, so uh, in the last year, uh, we have all been uh, targeting, um, trying to buy a new contract. Um, and as I'm sure all your listeners are aware by this point, uh, that has gone on for more than a year, uh, 18 months in, in some cases. Um, without a successful resolution and with a ton of unfair labor practices on behalf of the uh, UC administration. Uh, so on November 15th, I believe was the day we walked out on strike. Um, I had signed up several months earlier to be a strike captain for the history department. Mm-hmm. Um, I was assisted by a sort of informal committee of, of five of the younger people. Nice. Uh, sort of due to the pandemic, uh, a lot of my colleagues in my cohort um, were not able to go and do their research. Uh, so they're generally out of the country right now doing their field research. So we have a really great department of, of primarily first through third years that are uh, participating um, and, and kind of leading the effort. I also had signed up to be a, a picket uh, a picket leader um, that boiled down to what I've been really occupying myself with saying has been uh, uh, being a food captain. So we have been cooking for about 150 people at oh, wow. our location on campus. Um, we've been getting lots of great donations, um, food and, and cash, and we've been reinvesting that to feed the hungry picketers and spread to other picket locations. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I think that's really nice to uh, to bring up, actually, because um, that we were speaking about before the call, right? So many uh, people are familiar with and supportive of the concept of, of unions and unionization and workers' rights, but I think relatively few people have actually been on strike and, and seen what it takes to organize and all the little things you have to take care of. And so did you just step into that food captain role, like kind of ad hoc? Yeah, more or less. I, I showed up on the first day um, and I realized we had been marching around and shouting ourselves for it. Yeah. There was no water. So I ran yeah. down to the grocery store and I, I bought a bunch of water and that sort of snowballed into uh, cooking. Now we have about eight or nine people. Um, we rotate shifts and meal planning. Um, we actually use the history department graduate lounge. So <laughs> nice. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's really been our experience of picketing is for all the organization and, and, and signing up for different tasks that we did beforehand, hitting the ground and seeing what uh, what is needed to sustain that yeah. on a day-to-day level has, has been a journey. Yeah, I bet. But it seems to have been largely a successful one. Like, everyone is out energetic um there have been some really impressive actions actually like i don't know if you were part of the uh la jolla village drive uh <laughs> shut down i don't know what you want to call that yesterday but uh did you take part in that no i was okay. i was i was 
Okay, yeah, yeah. I fed the people who were there. Amazing, yeah, yeah. We actually found a faculty uh, spy the day before who went in and asked what time that was going to be. <laughs> uh, gave us our, our sort of, uh, uh, our window. There's been a lot of direct action and it's, it's been very successful from both the morale perspective and uh, conversational. I'm, I'm sure you're aware we uh, uh, approached Chancellor Bolsla uh, yesterday or the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though obviously we didn't get a promise from him that he would raise our wages or tell President Drake to raise our wages, uh, it, it was you know very energizing for uh, people who have you know been been not able to show up because of Thanksgiving break or felt yeah. a lull between there. We feel that direct action is is one of our strong suits at this point. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it is. It is wonderful to see, actually, like so many of us spent so much of our, our lives like studying workers movements and unionization and strikes. And it's cool to see people walking the talk out a little bit. And also very applicable. I mean, one of the really great things about going on strike with a bunch of graduates <laughs> you have the smartest minds in practically every field. We have, you know, com- com- communications that are uh, are working on emails and flyers and, and such. You've got uh, philosophy who are, uh, uh, you know, being philosophers. Historians <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, who are, 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 you know, quoting working class movements of the past to help uh, shape our strategy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a cool thing to see. Um, I remember a long time ago in like 2010, when last time we were on strike and. Uh, yeah, it was very cool. Um, one of the professors I was working with was with a lit professor, and she came and read some stuff. And then, you know, I, I, I made people listen to me talking about Daruti for a while, and uh, I enjoyed myself, even if maybe they didn't. Um, so, yeah, it, I want to talk a little bit as well about, like, you're in week three now, and you said, like, you've been maintaining the energy and you're feeding people, which is great. Um, how has obviously like strikes come with an element of economic hardship and, and that, that's somewhat offset by union strike funds, but it's given the economic precarity of people who are graduate students anyway, uh, it, it could be really tough. So how has that been? We're not quite at December 1st yet, which I, would that be the first missed paycheck if people are going to not get paid? Yes. Uh, we are most of us convinced that the UC will not have gotten their their house in order by this point. We were working until November fifteenth, so mm-hmm. at least we would be entitled to half a month's pay. But because there's no real way for the UC to determine exactly which workers are withholding labor and exactly which workers are on strike, it seems like the majority of workers will be receiving their first their their November paycheck um, tomorrow. Uh, yeah. We have also been receiving strike assistance from the union, mm-hmm. uh, from the UAW. Um, we're all aware that if we do receive our paycheck from the university, we will have to return that money so that we can fuel future uh, yeah. strike assistance. Um, and, and we're by and large okay with that. Uh, you know, that, I, I, so I found out that we don't actually need more Thanksgiving. They uh, they double the strike assistance. So oh, wow. Sort of form of holiday pay. So for this month, one way or another, um, we are all very hopeful that we'll be able to make ends meet. Uh, next month is is you know if the strike does continue, um, sort of bridge that we'll have to cross. I I've spoken to a lot of workers in the history department who are very concerned about. Um, 
about missed paychecks, uh, particularly also in the program that I teach for the making of the modern world, yeah. which recruits heavily from the history department. Yeah. Also has uh, non-student TAs and are not covered by the union and are not uh, 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 eligible for strike pay, pulling their labor in solidarity. But they're very concerned that uh, you know they're primarily working as their full-time job. Yeah, that's tough actually. I've 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 taught in that program too, both as a student and a non-student, and it, it's a good program, but it, it doesn't pay a ton, and and you don't save a lot of money living in Southern California, so it could be tough. Is there a way to contribute if people want to contribute to those people who are sort of withholding labor and solidarity? Uh, yes. So we are. Uh, there is a uh, UAW strike hardship fund. Mm-hmm. We don't have the information right now. Yeah, yeah. I'll include it in then. Notes for people. Uh, the budget, and there's also a, uh, a Venmo that we're accepting donations for food. Yeah. We're distributing that to the nine tickets on, on the UCSD campus. At the moment, we've been just overwhelmed with goodwill and prices. Um, yeah. But, you know, depending on how long the strike goes, this would definitely be something that we do with, like, large public support. The thing I think that the public at large can be doing is, is exerting political pressure on the regions and yeah. on the president to uh, uh, come up with yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, I hope they continue to do so. And let's talk a little bit about everyone we've talked to so far has been a science or engineering person. And obviously the experience is a little different when you're a, a historian or arts or humanities person because you, you don't go to a lab, right? You don't, your research is a bit different and your work is a bit different. So can you explain a little bit about the work, the work that one does as a history grad student, the, the labor that one does for the university and and at what the differences in what it's like withholding that labor. The difference is, is that uh, when we are, the vast majority of us that are in the history department uh, are ASEs, we are TAs, and of that, the majority of us teach for either the writing programs or for the history department. Um, so when we look at what we can contribute to the strike, we are looking at the withholding not only of grades, but of the type of grading that cannot be replaced. Uh, the course I'm teaching for now, there's uh, five or six BAs, and there's 650 students. I'm responsible for 60 of those students. Yeah. Each of those students has a weekly discussion uh, panel of five or 600 words. They have uh, 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 content analysis papers, which there's now two of them that are missing. Those are things that can that cannot be reverted to multiple choice. It's a writing program. Yeah. It's not a formula. It's not something that can be easily replaced. Uh, uh, um, yeah. We are aware that there has been some tension in terms of, of strategic planning between the ASEs and, and uh, SRUs in the STEM fields. Uh, that, uh, on the one hand, in their in their teaching duties. Um, they are very afraid that their professors will be able to co-opt the teaching process um, by making exams multiple choice or, or something else. I, I'm not yeah. sure how that would work. I know that that's just not really possible yeah. in, the, uh, in the humanities. Um, and the other th- issue, which again, I can't really speak to, but I'm sure your other uh, contributors have explained this, is we don't work in labs. Our research is much more long-term we primarily conduct that research either in uh, in absentia during the school year with external fellowships or during the summer. Um, whereas SRUs tend to be working in their labs 
more or less constantly. I yeah. heard it said that one of the reasons that uh, SRUs are rumored to be less uh, uh, committed to a long-term strike is because missing two weeks in a lab sets them back by six months in their career. For, yep. for the vast majority of humanities uh, uh, ASEs that I talked to, uh, two weeks is, is very... <laughs> Yeah. It can be picked up you know, if you're reading a book in your spare time. It, it's not uh, something that we need to be in, in with Bunsen burners and S2 and, and animals. Um, yeah. So there seems to be a, a kind of a, a material uh, conditions divide between yep. uh, the SOUs and ASUs on the one hand and the STEM and humanities on the Right, yeah, yeah. There are definitely like two week periods I spent on my research and stuff that I never used in, in any of my final projects. Like trying to get an archive to open in Spain uh, can often take that long. So I think one thing I'd like to talk about is like the, as it stands now, what you're hearing from the bargaining team and how that's being received. Like, I know there are a lot of different demands, a lot of different things that brought people to the strike, right? The uh, access needs, COLA, the unfair labor practices, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, what are you hearing on the picket line and, and how is it being received? So the, the news for the first week was on day four, the SRU bargaining team agreed to accept a 7% yearly increase versus a cost of living adjustment that would be paid, and I believe, to the median uh, uh, rent uh, increase in, I think, in the most expensive cities in California, which would be San Diego and, and San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, the strike was sold to the vast majority of, of the uh, unradicalized, un, uneducated rank and file as being about the 54,000 base pay. Uh, yeah. as well as the access needs, as well as, uh, you know, uh, guaranteed summer employment for some units um, and, and various different things. But um, there was a lot of consternation in on day four, and I think a lot of us became very radicalized um, when we realized that not only had the uh, SRU bargaining team apparently made a concession uh, on day four of what was what was supposed to be a very powerful strike, yeah. um, but that that concession didn't really resolve the issue of, of skyrocketing inflation and, and rent costs. Yeah, and, and, and um, you know different campuses were weighing in to say, you know, in Santa Cruz, the rent went up something like sixty-five percent in the last year. Jesus seven percent flat increase doesn't help us at all. Like, yeah. If, the University of California, the largest employer and the largest landlord in the state of California, uh, is is raising, you know, their wages by a flat rate. Then, then all the landlords in that area will continue to raise wages mm. even higher or, or, or rent even higher. Yeah. Um, so a lot of us who were really, I wasn't around for the 2020 cola wildcat strike, um, but in the process of this consternation of, of the SRUBT giving up this uh, uh, whole lab that's fixed to the median rent. Um, a lot of us became very, um, I also disillusioned, but very uh, radicalized and um, started looking into it more. Uh, in the humanities, I can say, in our picket line, where we have uh, philosophy, literature, uh, uh, history, um, and a number of other related departments, uh, it was very militant. 
uh, that was the first kind of moment of uh, uh, consciousness of awareness, I think, for a lot of us. Um, and over the last week, it's uh, the last two weeks, it's become a kind of internal uh, struggle over, over tactics and strategy. Uh, whether it's reasonable to expect that we can hold out for our aims. The bargaining teams have, on our campus at least, and there are exceptions, um, have, have generally have generally advanced a sort of moderate line that, yeah, 54,000 is, is high in the sky, is great to me, but you know, the way that bargaining works is, is you offer something high and you get something low. I think we're, we're all, you know, willing to accept that that is how bargaining works, but we have, at least in my think of mine, at least in the humanities, been very concerned by the tactical decisions to make certain concessions at certain stages without letting the full power of, of our strike take hold, especially the withholding of grades, which is coming up yeah. this weekend and next week. Um, Another thing which, you know, uh, most of us have not been on the bargaining team, and a lot of us are just kind of checking in uh, to this this very long-term process pretty late in the game. Yeah. When you watch these bargaining sessions and see what you see is operating, definitely does not seem like the bargaining team strategy of offering a concession in order to get something uh, else bigger it is working at all. Um, we, I believe, made some compromises on accessibility needs uh, in the hopes that that would provoke the UC to offer a comprehensive economic package. Last week we did. Uh, okay. We included a 1.5% increase for the SRU's proposal and nothing for the ASEs. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's you're still a long way apart then. So in, in both in both the removal of COLA on day four mm-hmm. and last night's bargaining, I think there's real concern that the, the bargaining team is getting the, the short end of the stick. Yeah, that's tough. If people don't remember from last time, by the way, COLA is the cost of living adjustment that was the initial cause of the 2020 Wildcats, right? Yes, COLA is cost of living adjustment. And there was a lot of um, uh, really interesting discourse about kind of what that meant. People who are chanting no COLA, no contract, they define COLA as as meaning specifically a yearly percentage increase that is tied to the fixed median rent. Yeah. I, I believe that fixed, the fixed median rent. Whereas uh, the bargaining team had, had argued that a 7% yearly increase qualified as COLA it was a yearly increase. Right, but maybe less than inflation given... And certainly less than rent, given what rent has done in the last couple of years. In, and these universities are in very desirable places to live with very high rents. They don't offer subsidi- they don't offer significantly subsidized housing, especially to grad students often, especially not to all grad students. And uh, so, yeah, it, it becomes very difficult to live even on what would seem like a decent wage, and unless you want to commute a long way. Something like 90% of the work, and again, I, I'm a historian, not a uh, political scientist, to believe that the vast majority of graduate students who were polled said that they were rent burdened, that 50% or more uh, of their money went to rent. Most people I've talked to, it's, it's more like 70%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can find yourself in that situation working for the university and with the university also as your landlord and you're paying the sun system, which, you know, it has control over both ends. And 
it's not doing much to help anyone. Let's talk about withholding grades because that's coming up, right? And that's kind of the the next level of escalation, I suppose, or like the the, the next hurdle um, that's coming up. So, what does withholding grades look like? And can and can you explain why there's sort of a pedagogical reason that people would be obviously like worried about doing that, or it's a this a sort of barrier um, and what it would do to the university and what it would do uh, to your students as well. Yes. So fundamentally, the, the withholding of grades is the withholding of the ultimate finished product of our labor. Um, we can talk about pedagogy and ideology and, and you know, high yeah. ivory tower and yeah. as much as we want. But at the end of the day, when an when, uh, uh, undergraduate at the University of California uh, pays their tuition, they expect to get grades and transcripts yeah. in return. And the, the reputation of the UC that makes it one of the premier public institutions in the world is that that grading uh, is is accredited to be uh, reflective of very high quality of education. We are saying that we are not providing that ultimate uh, record, um, which in the end is is you know uh, what a student would uh, demonstrate if they were applying to graduate school, uh, if they were applying um, for internship really anything that uh, reflects their college experience um, would be tied to that grade. We are also saying that, you know, in, in addition to that very brutal kind of explicit uh, uh, result, um, the, the pedagogy itself is also a suffering that, you know, students are here to learn and, and you know, you might complain in an individual class, but by and large they do get a lot from their education, and if they are not being actively taught by their teaching assistants, um, they're suffering. In, in the MMW program that you and I both taught for, yeah. um, the, the lectures are, are not for fun, but they're very, uh, you know, it's, it's a very large lecture hall. It's kind of a general history. The vast majority of instruction, both in the uh, historical, cultural uh, content of the course, as well as in the uh, the, the writing uh, aspect, which is the point of the program to develop a skilled, analytical, academic writers. Um, and they are not getting that at all. That's some. That's a burden that is carried 100% by the TAs. And by withholding that, uh, it, it, uh, it prevents the students from receiving quality education, uh, essentially. Yeah. So we're, we're hoping that, that particularly in the humanities where our labor is completely irreplaceable, um, that will pressure the university. Now, we have been hearing that um, some universities have been unilaterally extending the deadline for final grades. Yeah. And I believe that uh, either Riverside or Irvine, I just saw a message about this, had extended January. There's a lot of sort of confusion about what that would entail. If that yeah. to, you know, if the strike is over and we all go back, we then have to go right. facto. Um, it seems like some faculty have either in solidarity or in uh, uh, desperation <laughs> decided to either move final exam, change the format of those exams. Um, we are, I think, at root the most afraid that the university will uh, uh, grant some sort of amnesty. Uh, this reporting doesn't count, everybody gets passed. Um, if they do that, uh, it would 
it would, in theory, weaken the union's power, but it would also weaken the universities. Yeah. Those students who require those grades to uh, uh, progress yeah. in their college education in their life. It would be a huge blow for them to receive uh, not a letter grade. Um, yeah, just a P. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a massive step for the university to take in undermining their own status and uh, yeah, the well-being of their students, right? Like if you have a required class or required grade in a certain class to progress to graduate school or to progress to a vocational degree, then um, yeah, that, that would make it, that could have long-term implications for those students. Right. Yeah, that, yeah, that would be a big step for them. So we'll, I suppose, yeah, the, that's interesting. If they extend it, what are you required to go back and redo? That's a huge amount of labor that you would then be doing in a very compact amount of time to grade three MOW assignments is uh, an endurance challenge. Grades are normally due in like mid-December, right? Is that still the case at UCSD right now? So this, this, is, this is week 10. Yeah, the clock is ticking. So how does, the, uh, how does the strike look if you go past week 10, right? If you go, not just in terms of withholding grades, but obviously campus is very different when the undergrads aren't there. Right. I don't think that we've had really, uh, we have had discussions about whether or not we're in it for the long haul. We are, I think at, at the moment, hedging our bets on the next two weeks being in, in some ways decisive. Yeah. Um, there is a faction, uh, a strategic faction that feel that once finals are, are over, our power dramatically weakens. Um, certainly if the UC did decide to uh, 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 sort of bypass the, the grading for this mm -hmm. quarter, it would seem like that would be an analysis. I'm not convinced that they would do that. Um, in, in my view, the longer that we withhold those grades, um, the we continue to have the leverage. I don't think the UC will just throw up their hands, you know, uh, the weekend final and say, oh, well, it's a write-off. See you next quarter. Yeah, yeah. I think they, they might try and hold you out. I'd love to know, like, to close out what you've learned through the the three and a bit weeks you've been on strike and what you think, like, people should take from this. Like, it's an unprecedented era for workers' organization in the last... 20, 30 years, we've seen more strikes in the last few years than we have in decades. So what can people learn from the UC experience? Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I uh, have learned, um, which is very salient in my mind, um, as somebody who, who started organizing uh, about three or four months before the strike, I was approached to uh, be a strike captain and picket leader. I went to various trainings. I went uh, sat in on campus organizing committee meetings. Um, and the, the that we were given kind of before the strike began was that we had an incredible amount of power. The strike ratification vote where uh, we uh, uh, more than three quarters of the graduate students voted overwhelmingly in the 98 percentile to go on strike. Um, we all went in with a very powerful sense of, of uh, the historic nature of the strike and our our, uh, our bargaining power and our solidarity. Um, that seemed to be treated by many of the union leadership as a finite resource, as something that we more or less pulled the trigger on, sent the workers out, hoped for a smart resolution, and if we didn't get it, then um, worked to wrap it up uh, as quickly as we can. I'm sure that I'm giving them short shrift and that this is probably ultimately an unfair analysis, 
but very much the perception, you know, very clearly that, that, you know, this isn't sustainable, that we are reaching our peak power, um, that now is the time to start uh, uh, kind of pivoting to making these concessions. And we're all kind of saying, like, no, this, the organizing doesn't stop when you walk out. The organizing begins when you walk out. And for, for people like me who, you know, had, had some knowledge, I, I have uh, experience in organizing. I've been to Occupy movements. Um, I consider myself very well educated, radical. Uh, but just at the fact of getting on the picket line, experiencing it day to day, talking to my fellow workers across campuses, uh, across picket lines, has been energizing and radicalizing all on its own. And I don't think that the union leadership really knew what to do with that and how to leverage it. The bushes were fishes or horses or whatever. I think that um, a lot of people with the, uh, our campus union leadership ought to have done a better job with the, uh, the day-to-day energizing. Um, one issue that, uh, you know, I, I can't blame specifically on, on uh, a specific bargaining unit or, or uh, even the U- UAW uh, 265, um, but it is a union rule that comes from above, is that um, if you do not pick it, you do not actively sign up or picket shifts that you do campus to run around, you do not get strike pay. Um, and for a lot of us who have accessibility needs or are, are not close to campus or are uh, withholding their labor and active in the strike in other ways, they feel like there's not really a place for them in the strike. Yeah. Um, and, and they're doing equally crucial work. Yes, it's good to have people picketing and, and have that visibility. But ultimately, if there were two people picketing and everybody else was withholding their labor, we would still win the strike. Um, so there seems to be a, a, a overwhelming emphasis on the visible symbol of our power and our solidarity and the um, concession that was made in, in day four was explained by uh, the dwindling uh, amount of people who were showing up for pickets, you know, from day one to two to three to four. Um, and a lot of us tried to push back on that and say, yes, you know, it's, it, it, it's hard to sustain that physical presence. Yeah. But we should be also uh, working to bolster and encourage and um, uh, harness the power of those workers who can't make it to picket every day. But yeah. nevertheless doing uh, a crucial labor stop. Yeah. Is there still a remote picketing option? Does that count? Yes. Yes, there is. Um, it, uh, you know, in any, in any organization that's run by, uh, you know, a, a, a mass of workers, there's going to be some growing pains. And there are issues in the first, in the first week of, of kind of dueling uh, remote coordinators with separate lists that resolve, and they seem to have been resolved by now. Same thing with some delays in uh, uh, processing strike pay, uh, account disbursements. Again, it, there's there's no shadiness happening here. It's just right. thousands of workers doing this for the first time. Um, but for but for people who are uh, you know sort of on the fence or saying I I I can't really afford to miss a paycheck. That was a, a real big stressor for them. It affected their um, their willingness to kind of be out there every day. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And it, it, yeah, it's it's already a, a stressful time. But like you say, these things will have people will learn in the process, right? Like it's new for so many people. It's 
unprecedented to have like 10% of the graduate students in the country withholding their labor. Um, so like there will of course be growing pains. And I think often when we look at strikes, like both you and me as historians and as consumers of the news, we like, we see one photo of a bunch of people like in high vis standing around a brazier. And then three weeks later, we read another story about a, a resolution contract. Right. And in fact, what makes a strike powerful is feeding people and, and being showing up and looking out for one another. So like, that's what we're trying to document. Thanks so much, Matt. Um, I wonder where people can find, if you'd like to give your own social media or where people can find strike updates from the UC and from UC San Diego, anything like that you want to plug? Uh, Yes, I'm partisan in this, but I would highly recommend not uh, getting strike updates from UC San Diego. So yeah, from the campus, not from the university, yeah. So fairucnow.com mm-hmm. or dot org. Yeah, sure. I think it's dot. I think it's an org. Yeah. I've been dealing with documents too much. Um, that's yeah. a great place. Uh, on Twitter has also been very, mm-hmm. despite all of its current. <laughs> yeah. Um, and getting up to date uh, information. Can you tell us the Venmo where people can, like, in a true Spanish historian fashion, feed everyone? Have you got a giant paella out there? Are you like with the spade? And- so I will clarify. This is a this is an unofficial. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is not the UAW worldwide Venmo, but uh, the the pickers on the UCSD campus who yeah. have been organizing feeding across the lines. Our Venmo is at UCSD Strike Food. Nice. Yeah. Easy to remember. Uh, hopefully you get some donations. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. I appreciate it. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.